Desperate Measures If she needed evidence, things were different now. The food was enough. On days when Kiyoshi had time to eat breakfast, she usually helped herself to a bowl of juk from the communal pot bubbling away in the kitchen, garnished with whatever dried-out scraps from the upstairs tables Auntie Mui deemed fit to save from the previous night. Today, another servant surprised her outside her door and led her to one of the dining halls reserved for guests. The room she sat in by herself was so big and empty that drinking her tea made an echo. The grand Zitan table held such an array of boiled, salted, and fried delicacies that she thought the place setting for one had to be a mistake. It was not. Without knowing which of the children under his roof was the avatar, Jenju seemed to have decreed that Kiyoshi was to be fed like a noble until he figured it out. She tried to accommodate his generosity, but a small bite of each artfully arranged dish was all she could manage with her rice. Including, she noted with chagrin, the spicy pickled kelp she'd carried to the house herself, now nestled in a lacquered saucer. Her waiter checked back in. Is mistress finished? she asked with a bowed head. Rin, I went to your birthday party, Kyoshi said. I chipped in for that comb you're wearing. The girl shrugged. You're not to show up for work anymore. Master Genju wants you by the training grounds in an hour. But what am I supposed to do until then? Whatever mistress wishes. Kiyoshi staggered out of the dining room like she'd taken a blow to the head. Leisure? What kind of animal was that? She didn't want anyone to see her up and about the house. Oh, there's Kiyoshi taking in the flowers. There she goes now, pondering the new calligraphy from the air temple. The prospect of being on display horrified her. In lieu of a better option, she ran to the small library where she'd spoken to Kelsung and latched the door behind her. She hid there, alone with her dread, until the appointed time came. Kiyoshi was as unfamiliar with the flat stone expanse of the training ground as she would have been with the caldera of a Fire Nation volcano. Her duties never brought her here. Jenju waited in the middle of the courtyard for her, a scarecrow monitoring a field. Don't bother with that anymore, he said when she bowed deeply like a servant. Come with me. He led her into one of the side rooms, a supply closet that had been hastily emptied of its contents. Straw dummies and earth-bending discs had been tossed without care outside, irking her sense of organization. Inside, Haydon waited for them. Kyoshi, she said with a warm smile. Thank you for humoring us. I know it's been a trying past couple of days for you. Kyoshi felt like there would be no end to the awkwardness. Despite her friendship with Rongi, she and the headmistress were more distant than she and Jenju. Haydon was acting much friendlier than she'd expected. But Kiyoshi looked down and noticed that the woman had been pacing trails in the dusty floor. Rongi often did that when she was upset. I'll help in any way I can, Kiyoshi said, her throat feeling suddenly parched. 
her tonsils stuck to the back of her tongue, causing her words to catch in her mouth. Sorry, that's my doing, Hadon said with a gentle laugh. I dried the air out in this room for an exercise. Please, sit. There were two silk cushions borrowed from the meditation chamber on the floor. Kiyoshi was horrified at the finery thrown on the dirty ground, but she took a position across from Heiran anyway. She was keenly aware of Jenju standing behind her, watching like a bird of prey. We performed this test on newborns in the Fire Nation to see if they're capable of firebending, Heiran said. We have to know about our children quick, as you can imagine. Or else they risk burning the neighborhood down. It was a joke, but it made Kiyoshi more nervous. What do I have to do? Very little. Heiran reached into a pouch and pulled out what appeared to be a ball of tinder. This is shredded birch bark and cotton mixed with some special oils. She fluffed the material with her fingers until it was wispy and cloud-like. You just need to breathe and feel your inner heat. If the tinder lights, you're a firebender. And therefore the avatar. You're certain this will work? Hadon raised an eyebrow. Newborns, Kiyoshi. It's essentially impossible for a true firebender not to make some indication with this method. Now hush, I need to get a little closer to you. She held the tinder puff under Kiyoshi's nose as if she was trying to revive her with smelling salts. Relax and breathe, Kiyoshi. Don't put effort into it. Your natural fire, your source of life, is enough. Breathe. Kiyoshi tried to do as she was told. She could feel strands of cotton tickling her lips. She took in deep lungfuls of air over and over. I'll help you along, Hadon said after two minutes without results. The air around them grew hotter, much hotter. Trickles of sweat ran down Kiyoshi's face, drying out before they reached her chin. She was desperately thirsty again. Just a tiny spark. Hadon sounded like she was pleading now. I've done most of the work. Let loose. The slightest push, that's all I'm asking for. Your thumb on the scale. Kyoshi tried for ten more minutes straight before she collapsed forward, coughing and hacking. Hadon crumpled the tinder in her fist. A puff of smoke drifted from between her fingers. It takes children, babies, a few seconds at most under these conditions, she said to Jenju. Her voice was unreadable. Kiyoshi looked up at the two masters. I don't understand, she said. Didn't Yoon already pass this test? Jenju didn't answer. He turned around and stormed out of the room, slamming his fist into the frame as he left. The earth-bending discs stacked by the door exploded into dust. Someone had seen Kyoshi coming and going from her new hiding place in the secondary library and ratted her out. 
There was no other way Yoon would have found her, curled up beside a medicine chest that had over a hundred little drawers, each carved with the name of a different herb or tincture. Yoon sat down on the floor across from her, leaning his back against the wall. He scanned over the labels next to her head. It feels like way too many of these are cures for baldness, he said. Despite herself, Kiyoshi snorted. Yoon tugged on a strand of his own brown hair, perhaps thinking ahead to the day he'd have to join the air nomads for airbending training at the northern or southern temple. They wouldn't force him to shave it off, but Kiyoshi knew he liked to honor other people's traditions, and he'd still be good looking anyway. But then, maybe he would never get the chance, Kiyoshi thought miserably. Maybe it would be stolen from him by a petty thief who'd burrowed into his house under the guise of being his friend. He seemed to pick up on her swell of self-hatred. Kiyoshi, I'm sorry, he said. I know you never meant for this to happen. Rangi doesn't. Saying it out loud made her feel ungrateful for his forgiveness. She could count on Yoon's easygoing nature and inability to hold a grudge, but if Rangi truly believed Kiyoshi had wronged them, then there was no hope. It was clear. Kiyoshi needed both of them in order to feel whole. She wanted her paired set of friends put back into its original place before the earthquake had knocked everything off the shelf. This state of not knowing they were trapped in was a plane of spiritual punishment, separating them from their old lives like a sheet of ice over a lake. Rangi'll come around, Yun said. She's a person of faith, you know? A true believer. It's hard for someone like her to deal with uncertainty. You have to be a little patient with her. He caught himself and twisted his lips. What is it? Kiyoshi said. Nothing. I was just acting like Sifu for a second there. The smile faded from his face. Yoon plunked the back of his head against the wall at the thought of Jianju. It's him I'm really worried about. That seemed backward. The student, anxious about the well-being of the teacher. I didn't realize it when I first met Sifu. But determining who should train the avatar and how is a cutthroat business. Yun said. You'd think the masters of the world are these benevolent, selfless old men and women. But it turns out that some of them simply want to use the Avatar's power and reputation to profit themselves. Jenju had told her something similar in the infirmary, that whoever taught the Avatar held immense influence over the world. Kiyoshi regretted what she'd said to Kelsong the day before. He might have had reasons for wanting her to be the avatar, but material gain was certainly not one of them. It's especially bad in the Earth Kingdom, Yoon went on. We call the prominent elders sages, but they're not true spiritual leaders like in the Fire Nation. They're more like powerful officials with all the politicking they do. He held up his hands, comparing his clean one to the one stained with ink during the battle with Tagaka. The color still hadn't faded from his skin. But that's partly why Sifu and I have been working so hard, he said, 
the more good we do for the four nations, the less chance that another sage tries to take me away from him. I don't think I could handle having a different master. They would never be as wise or as dedicated as Sifu. Kiyoshi looked at his darkened hand and wondered if she couldn't hold him down and scrub the ink off his skin. What would happen to the work you've done if... if... She couldn't finish the thought out loud. If it wasn't you, if it was me. Yoon took a deep, agonized breath. I think nearly every treaty and peace agreement Sifu and I brokered would become null and void. I've made so many unwritten judgments, too. If people found out that it wasn't the Avatar who'd presided over their dispute, and only some street urchin from Makapu, they would never abide by the outcome. Superb, Kiyoshi thought. She could be responsible for the breakdown of law and order around the world, and the separation of Yoon from his teacher. That was the worst prospect of all. For as long as she'd known him, Yoon had staunchly refused to talk about his blood relations. But the reverent way he looked at Jinju, despite any arguments or bouts of harsh discipline, made it very clear. He had no one else. Jinju was both his mentor and his family. Kiyoshi knew what it was like to founder alone in the dark, grasping for edges that were too far away, without a mother or father to extend a hand and pull you to safety. The pain of having no value to anyone, nothing to trade for food or warmth or a loving embrace. Maybe that was why she and Yoon got along so well. Where they differed, though, was how long they wallowed in sadness. Yoon sniffed the air, and his gaze wandered until it landed on a porcelain bowl resting on top of the chest. It was filled with dried flower petals and cedar shavings. Are those fire lilies? He said, a wide, knowing grin spreading across his face. Kiyoshi flushed beet red. Stop it, she said. That's right, Yoon said. The Ember Island tourism minister brought a bunch when he visited two weeks ago. I can't believe you simply shred the flowers once they dry out. I guess nothing goes to waste in this house. Knock it off, Kiyoshi snapped. But it was too hard keeping the corners of her lips from curling upward. Knock what off, he said, enjoying her reaction. I'm just commenting on a fragrance I've come to particularly enjoy. It was an inside reference that only the two of them shared. Rangi didn't know. She hadn't been there in the gifting room eight months ago while Kiyoshi arranged a vast quantity of fire lilies sent by an admiral in the fire navy, one of Heiran's friends. Yoon had spent the afternoon watching Kiyoshi work. Against every scrap of her better judgment, she'd allowed him to lie down on the floor and rest his head in her lap, while she plucked deformed leaves and trimmed stems to the right length. Had anyone caught the two of them like that, there would have been a scandal that not even the Avatar could have recovered from. That day, entranced by Yoon's upside-down features, dappled with the flower petals she'd teasingly sprinkled over his face, she'd almost leaned down and kissed him. And he knew it.
because he'd almost reached up and kissed her. They never spoke of it afterward, the shared impulse that had nearly crashed both of their carriages. It was too... Well, they each had their duties, was a good way to put it. That moment did not fit anywhere among their responsibilities. But since then, whenever the two of them were in the presence of fire lilies, Yun's eyes would dart toward the flowers repeatedly until he was sure Kiyoshi noticed. She would try unsuccessfully to keep a straight face, the heat coloring her neck, and he'd sigh as if to mourn what could have been. Today was no different. With a wistful blush on his own cheeks, Yoon stared her down until her defenses broke, and she let out a giggle through her nose. There's that beautiful smile, he said. He pressed his heels into the floor, sliding up against the wall, and straightened his rumpled shirt. Kyoshi, trust me when I say this. If it turns out not to be me, I'll be glad it's you. He might have been the one person in the world who thought so. Kiyoshi had to marvel at his forbearance. Her fears were unfounded. Yoon could still look at her and see a friend instead of a usurper. She should have believed in him more. We're late, Yoon said. I was supposed to find you and bring you to Sifu. He said he has something fun planned for us this afternoon. I can't she said, out of ingrained habit. I have work. He raised his brows at her. No offense, Kyoshi, but I think you've pretty much been fired. Now get up off that maybe avatar rear of yours. We're going on a trip. The Spirit Master Kelsong needs more time to heal, Jenju said over his shoulder. In the meanwhile, we can perform a spiritual exercise that might shed light on our situation. Think of it as a little earthbenders-only outing. He adjusted Pung Pung's course, the breeze blowing her tufts of fur in a new direction. The group was the unusual combination of Jenju, Yun, and Kyoshi. They'd borrowed Kelsong's bison, leaving Rongi and Heiran behind. There should have been nothing wrong with the concept of three Earth Kingdom natives bonding over their shared nationality. But Kiyoshi found it unnerving. Without Rangi or her mother present, it felt like they were sneaking away to do something illicit. She glanced at the terrain below. By her best reckoning, they were somewhere near the Shishan Mountains that ran along the southeastern edge of the continent the same ones that the Earth King incorrectly considered a sufficient barrier to waterborne threats like the pirates of the Eastern Sea. Kyoshi still wasn't fully comfortable addressing Genju in a casual manner, so it fell on Yoon to ask what the point of this trip was. Sifu, he said cautiously, an idea forming in his head. Is the reason we're going to a remote area because we're trying to invoke the Avatar state? His master scoffed. Don't be ridiculous. What's the Avatar state? Kiyoshi whispered to Yun. Jenju's sharp ears intercepted her question. It's a tool 
he said, and a defense mechanism, a higher state of being designed to empower the current avatar with the skills and knowledge of all the past ones. It allows for the summoning of vast cosmic energies and nearly impossible feats of bending. That sounded definitive enough. Why wouldn't they try it after the failures they'd suffered? But if the Avatar can't maintain conscious control over so much power, then their bending can go berserk, causing elemental destruction on a grand scale. Genju continued. They'd turn into a human natural disaster. The first time Kurok practiced entering the Avatar state, we went to a small, uninhabited atoll so we wouldn't hurt anyone. What happened? Yoon said. Well, after his eyes stopped glowing and he came down from floating 20 feet in the air inside a sphere of water, the island wasn't there anymore, Genju said. The rest of us survived by the skin of our teeth. So, no, we're not triggering the Avatar state. I shudder to think what would happen if an Earth avatar started hurling landmasses left and right with abandon. He took them lower. The westward side of the mountainous ridge was dotted with empty mining settlements. Scapes of brown dust spread from the operating sites like an infection, eating into the tree line and displacing the natural vegetation. Kiyoshi looked for signs that the land was growing back, but the scars were permanent. The wild grasses kept a strict cordon around the areas touched by the miners. Janju set Pung Pung down for a landing in the center of a mud-walled hamlet. Whoever originally earthbent the structures into shape had been so sloppy that it seemed intentional, as if to remind the occupants that they weren't going to stay long. Kiyoshi was surprised they didn't cause any further collapses by jumping down from the bison. This is an important locus of earthen spiritual energy, Genju said. Yoon dug his toe into the dust as he surveyed their surroundings. It looks more like a wasteland. It's both. We're here to commune with a particular spirit roused from its slumber by the devastation. I'm hoping one of you can help ease its suffering. But talking with spirits is no guarantee, Yun said. I've read of past avatars who've had trouble with it. And then there's people like Master Kelsong who have been able to communicate with the spirits effortlessly at times. I didn't say the method was perfect, Genju snapped. If it was, I'd have used it on you long ago. Yoon frowned and bit back more questions. Kiyoshi was glad that he shared her apprehension at the very least. The desolate town was eerie, the bones of a once-living thing. But on the other hand, she was slightly comforted by the knowledge that it would all be over soon. She knew nothing about spirits. In her opinion, being spiritual simply meant acknowledging the power of forces you couldn't see, and coming to terms with the fact that you didn't have control over every aspect of your life. The rituals of food and incense placed at sacred shrines were gestures to that worldview. Nothing more, nothing less. The stories about strange translucent animals and talking plants 
might have been true, but they weren't for her. The Avatar was the bridge between the human world and the spirit world, and whatever test Janju had in mind would settle the matter. Yoon would glow with energy or some other final proof, and she would lie there inert, listening for sounds she couldn't hear. After leaving Pung Pung with some dried oats to chew, they walked up the slope of the mountain on a tiny path that ran alongside a gouged-out sluice canal. It was steep going, and Yoon remembered there was a faster way to climb. You know, I could make a lift and- Don't, Jenju said. Eventually, the incline revealed a large terrace carved into the mountain. It was bigger than the entire settlement below, and it had been constructed with more care. It was perfectly level, and empty post holes indicated it had once held some very heavy equipment. Go sit in the middle, Jenju told them. Kiyoshi felt the same prickle on the back of her neck as she did when stepping onto the iceberg with Tagaka. It made little sense, seeing as how she was surrounded by her native element. Come on, Yun said to her. Let's get this over with. He seemed to have a better understanding of how this might escalate. She followed him to the center of the terrace. It's not the solstice, but it's almost twilight, Chenju said. The time of day when spiritual activity is at its highest. I will guide you to in meditation. Yun, help her if she needs it. Kyoshi had never meditated before. She didn't know which leg you folded over the other, or how your hands were supposed to touch. Fists pressed together, or thumb and forefinger. You've uh, basically got it, Yun said after they sat down. Tuck your tailbone in a bit more, and don't hunch your shoulders. He stayed facing her, taking up his own pose not too far off. She could have reached out and poked him. Jenju produced a small brazier and a stick of incense, which she placed between them. Someone help me light this with firebending, he said. They stared blankly at him. It was worth a shot, Jenju said. He lit the incense with a precious sulfur match and backed away until he reached the edge of the terrace, positioned like the high mark of a sundial. The air took on a sweet, medicinal note. Both of you, close your eyes and don't open them, Jenju said. Let go of your energy. Let it spill from you. We want to let the spirit get a taste of it, so to speak, so it knows it can come forth. Kyoshi didn't know how to control her energy, but if Jenju was telling her to throw away the idea of containing herself, to stop minimizing the space she took up, to let herself grow and rise to her full dimensions, it felt wonderful. The next exhalation she made seemed to go on forever, drawing from a reservoir inside her that had no end. Her sense of balance ran wild, the pull of the earth coming from each and every direction in turn. She swayed within the stillness of her own body, 
Her eyelids were a theater of the blank. A rasping noise came from the mountain, the sound of millstones with no grain between them. Don't open your eyes, Genju said softly. Hear sounds, smell smells. Take note of them naturally and let them pass without opening your eyes. The breeze picked up for a moment, dispersing the incense smoke. In the time it took to settle back down, Kyoshi thought she detected a whiff of something damp, almost fungal. It wasn't so atrocious as it was familiar. Familiar to whom, she thought, giggling silently as the incense took over again. You know what would be funny, she said. If it was, you know, neither of us. Kiyoshi, Yun said. His voice sounded slurred. I need to tell you something important. Me and you. She tried to speak again, but her tongue was too big for it. Genju hadn't told them to shut up yet. That was weird. Genju was master shut up. Was he okay? She had to check if he was okay. It was her duty as a member of his household. She disobeyed and peeked. Yoon was meditating peacefully. Had he spoken at all? Or had she imagined it? She tried to turn her head toward Jenju, but went the wrong way, looking at the mountain instead. A hole had been opened in the rock, a tunnel of pitch darkness. In its depths, a great glowing eyeball stared back at her. Her shriek caught in her throat. She tried to scramble away, but her muscles failed her, as if her joints had been sliced by a butcher. Nothing connected to anything. The eye floating in the mountain was the size of a wagon wheel. It had a sickly, luminescent tinge of green. A web of pulsing veins gripped it tightly from behind, giving the sphere an angry appearance, as if it would burst under its own pressure at any moment. It swiveled over to look at her, her futile struggle catching its attention. Yoon, her mind screamed. He wasn't moving. His breathing was slow and labored. Genju was unfazed by the horrific spirit before them. Father Glowworm, he called out in greeting. A cordial, mellifluent voice rumbled from deep within the mountain, the echo concentrated by the walls of the tunnel. Architect, it's been so long. The eye darted between the three of them. What have you brought me? A question. The spirit sighed, a low, nauseating hum that Kyoshi felt in her bones. That chatty little upstart Ko. Now every human thinks they can march up to the oldest and wisest of us and demand answers. I thought you had more respect, architect. 
Genju stiffened. This is an important question. One of these children is the Avatar. I need you to tell me which one. The spirit laughed, and it felt like the earth bounced. Oh my, the physical world is in poor shape indeed. You do know I'll need their blood? Kiyoshi thrashed back and forth, but whatever Genju had drugged them with rendered her flailing into mere twitches of movement, her cries into halting breaths. Yun's eyes opened, but only by the smallest degree. I know, Genju said. I've read Kuruk's private journals, but you've tangled with many of the Avatar's past lives. I must have the unerring judgment of a great and ancient spirit such as yourself. A carpet of slime spilled from the hole in the mountain, flowing over the terrace. It was the same moldy, rotting green as the eye, and it reached toward Yun and Kyoshi in tendrils, the shadows of fingers against a curtain. There was a scraping noise against the stone floor. It came from pointed flecks of debris floating in the wetness, bone-yellow roots and crowns. The slime was full of human teeth. Kiyoshi was so scared that she wanted to die. Her heart, her lungs, her stomach had been turned into instruments of torture, clawing and biting against each other like frenzied animals. She wanted to reach the void, pass into oblivion, anything to end this terror. As the ooze reached for her knee, Yun opened his eyes. Summoning his strength, he lunged at Kiyoshi, shoving her away, throwing his body between her and the spirit. He choked in surprise as the rasping slime shot underneath his clothing. A damp crimson spot bloomed on the back of his shirt. Kiyoshi's foot lay next to the brazier of incense. A meager contribution after what Yun did, but she screamed with her whole body this time instead of her vocal cords and kicked at the little bronze vessel. The burning ash landed on the slime and fizzled out. The plasm nearest them shrank from the heat, and the spirit hissed angrily. Yun struggled to his knees beside her. I'm surprised you can move. Genju said to him, more impressed than anything else. Poison training, Yun spat through clenched jaws. With Sifu Amak, remember? Or did you forget every darker exercise you put me through? They were distracted from the slime regrouping, wrapping around Kyoshi's ankle until it latched on tight and ground away, sanding her skin off with the rows of teeth. Her blood formed clouds inside the living mucus. Yun saw her writhe in pain. He grabbed her hand and tried to pull her away from the spirit, their palms clasped hard enough that Kiyoshi felt their bones roll over each other. But the tendril held her fast, tasting her, lapping at her wound. It's this one, the spirit said. The girl. She's the avatar. Kiyoshi and Yoon were looking each other in the eye when it happened, when she saw Yoon's spirit break inside him. He had been lying to her with his body and his smile and his words this whole time. 
he'd thought it was him. Truly and utterly. He'd never once entertained the notion that it might not be him. Any kindness and warmth he'd shown to Kiyoshi since the iceberg hadn't been signs of his acceptance. They'd been layers of armor that he'd furiously assembled to protect himself. And that armor had failed. Piece by piece, Kiyoshi saw the only Yoon she'd ever known. The boy who was the Avatar, sloth and flake into nothingness. His mantle had been stripped from his shoulders, and the shape underneath was merely wind. He let go of her. Genju was on top of them in a flash. He sliced at the branch of slime with a sharp, precise little wall, and using the care of his own two hands, dragged Kiyoshi away to safety. Just Kiyoshi. He laid her on the ground and turned around. But it was too late. The spirit's slime reared into the air between them, and Yun, a snake guarding its prey. The eyeball in the tunnel swelled with fury. You call me forth. Ask for my boon, and then assault me? Its roar nearly shattered the bones in Kiyoshi's ears. Yun, she tried to shout. Run, fight, save yourself. The Avatar, it never meant anything. Jenju took an earth-bending stance, cautiously settling his feet the way a swordsman might slowly go for his blade. I couldn't risk you taking your revenge on Kurok's reincarnation. You had your blood, Father Glowworm. Your price has been paid. I'm raising it. Instead of attacking the two of them, the tendril wrapped around Yoon from neck to hip. His face was as pale as clay. He wouldn't move his limbs. Every fear Kiyoshi had of taking from him what he treasured most had come to pass in a thundering instant. There was only one more thing left for him to lose. No, Kiyoshi sobbed. Please, no. The spirit pulled, and Yoon flew backward into the tunnel, disappearing into the darkness. As Jenju punched his fist upward to seal the passage shut once more with solid mountain, Kiyoshi found her voice again. She screamed pure fire. The flame shot out of her mouth like the rage of a dragon in a single explosive burst. It doused the terrace and rendered swaths of lingering ooze into blackened flaking char. But the tunnel was closed. Her fire washed impotently against the mountainside until it petered out entirely. Kiyoshi stumbled to her feet, barely able to see past her sticky eyelids. The inside of her mouth was blistered. She could sense Jinju's presence in front of her, looming. I'm sorry, he said. This could have been avoided if you had. She surged forward and tackled him off the edge of the terrace. The trip down this time was worse than the iceberg. Kiyoshi lost her grip on Jinju the instant her shoulder smashed into a withered, hardened tree root. She tumbled wildly, tail over tea kettle, and came to a stop at the bottom of the slope. Ignoring the pain, she looked around for Jinju. It wasn't to be found in the thin scrub surrounding the base of the mountain. 
she snapped her head upward at the sound of stone moving. The earthbending master descended casually, stepping down a flight of stairs that he created himself. Where a more orthodox bender would simply raise a solid platform from the ground, Jenju gathered planks of stone and assembled them at will beneath his feet, using the same technique he'd reached Tagaka's ships with. It looked like the earth itself was bowing to him, prostrating under his immense power. Kiyoshi spotted a boulder behind him, large enough for her to lift, and rooted her feet to the ground. She pulled it toward them, not caring that she was also in its path. Jinju didn't bother turning his head. He reached behind him with one arm, and the room-sized rock split along its grain, letting him pass through the gap. The two half-spheres kept going and narrowly missed clipping Kiyoshi as well. She forced down a yelp as they collided with the ground behind her. Jenju looked at her with the same thoughtful expression he once reserved for Yun. I'll have to teach you to do more than simply go big, he said. Kiyoshi tried the only other basic tactic she knew of, breaking the opponent's foundation. She aimed her intent at the base of his stairs. She'd take them out along with a huge chunk of the slope. But after rooting herself again and throwing the mother of all arrow punches at the mountainside, the only movement she got was a geyser of dust. The stairs barely trembled. She tried again, and again. Jenju was taking deeper stances now, spiraling his arms in time with hers, and suddenly she knew why. He was reading her, smothering each movement of earth she attempted, nulling her out. She was a child, pulling on a door an adult was holding closed. Jenju stopped right in front of her, his platform raising him up so that he was eye level with her. Aside from the dust on his clothes, he could have been leaving a meeting in his house. She'd been unable to touch him in the slightest. Kyoshi, he said with a warmth that made her sick to her stomach. You are the Avatar. Don't you know what that means? The responsibility that you now have? He ran a hand through his hair and bared his teeth like he regretted what kind of bushes he'd planted in his garden. Kyoshi, I'm not a fool, and neither are you. We're not going to pretend you'll ever truly forgive me for what happened here. What I'm asking you to do is weigh our loss against the future of the world. Don't let Yun's sacrifice be in vain. Embrace your duty and let me teach you. Yun's sacrifice? Our loss? Her teeth crushed fresh wounds into her lips. She'd thought she'd known hate before. Hate had been a hollowness inside her, the dull ache that she'd been forced to cradle as she stumbled through the alleys of Yokoya, dizzy with hunger and sickness. Hate had been reserved for her own flesh and blood. But now she understood. True hatred was knife-edged and certain. A scale that begged for perfect balance, Yun lay on one side of the fulcrum. Her only responsibility in this life, as far as she was concerned, 
was to even the weight. She swore to herself. One way or another, she was going to know what Jenju looked like when he did lose everything he held dear. Kiyoshi hurled a fire fist, a move she knew nothing about. But whatever firebending she had in her had been used up. It came out as a normal punch, stopping short of his face. Seeing her so desperate to harm him cracked his mask of serenity. He frowned an ugly frown and clenched his fingers. Two small disks of stone slammed into Kiyoshi's wrists from the left and right. It happened so fast she didn't have time to flinch. The stones shaped themselves around her hands and joined each other in front of her body, forming a set of thick shackles. They were as snug as a bone doctor's splint and as unbreakable as iron. The bands of rock rose into the air, taking her with them. Her shoulders clicked painfully under her own weight, and she writhed like an insect caught on sticky paper, madly kicking her feet without purchase. Genju held her like that, a carcass for inspection, before slamming her back down. The stone shackles merged with the ground, and she struggled on all fours. He'd forced her into a full kowtow, a student's posture of submission to their master. Had you the essentials of earthbending, you could free yourself, Genju said. You've gone neglected long enough, Kiyoshi. You're weak. Her palms sunk deeper into the ground the more she tried to resist. There was no denying that he was right. She was weak, too weak to fight him the way she needed to. The distance between them was simply too great. So much wasted time, Genju said. I could have taught you sooner, if only I hadn't been distracted by that little swindler. That he wasn't done being cruel to Yun was a final kick to her gut. It was incomprehensible. She couldn't keep the tears from flowing down her face. How could you say that? She screamed. He worshipped you, and you used him. You think I used him? Genju's voice grew dangerously quiet. You think I profited from him somehow? Let me give you your first lesson. The same one I gave Yoon. He stamped his foot, and a thick layer of soil clamped itself over Kyoshi's mouth, a muzzle with no holes for her to breathe. She began to choke on her own element, her lungs clogging with grit. Genju swept his arm behind him in a wide, encompassing arc. Out there is an entire nation crammed full of corrupt, incompetent people who will try to use the Avatar for their own purposes. Buffoons who call themselves sages, when all it takes in the Earth Kingdom is having the right connections and paying enough gold to plaster such a title on your brow. The map of Kiyoshi's vision curled in on itself. Her toes gouged furrows in the dirt, trying to push her body toward air. The pounding in her head threatened to burst her skull. Without my influence, you'd turn into nothing more than a traveling peddler of favors. 
flopping here and there with your decisions, squandering your authority on petty boons and handouts. Genju said, unconcerned that she was losing consciousness before his eyes. You'd end up a living party trick. A bender who can shoot water and breathe fire and spit useless advice. A girl who paints the walls a pretty color while the house rots at its foundations. She barely made out Jianju crouching down beside her, bringing his lips close to her ear. I have dedicated my life to making sure the next avatar won't be used in such a manner, he whispered. And despite your every attempt to fight me, I will dedicate my life to you, Kiyoshi. He suddenly ripped away the earthen gag. The rush of air into her lungs felt like knives. She collapsed onto her chest, her hands freed but useless. For several minutes, she lay there, despising each pathetic gulp she took, each time she tried to stand but could not. Finally, she heaved herself to her feet, only to see Genju backing away from her, glancing over her head. A gale of wind washed them in dust and desiccated leaves. Kelsung landed his glider on the slope and slid down on his feet the rest of the way. Relieved as she was to see him, Kiyoshi knew right away that he shouldn't have come. His wounds had reopened, staining his bandages red. He'd traveled too far on his own without his bison. The journey by glider would have been arduous for an airbender at full health. How did you find us? Genju said. Kelson closed the wings on his staff. They'd been repaired so hastily that they wouldn't fold completely into the wood, lumps of glue sticking out of the seams. He leaned heavily on it for support, staring hard at Genju the whole time. You left a map out on your desk. I thought I locked my study. You did. Genju's composure broke fully for the first time today. Really, Kel? He shouted. You think so little of me these days that you panicked when I took the Avatar on a trip by myself and broke into my room? I can't trust the people closest to me anymore? Kiyoshi wanted to run to Kelsung, hide behind his robes, and sob like a child. But fear had closed her throat and glued her feet. She felt like the slightest word from her could prove to be a spark thrown on the oil. She didn't have to say anything, though. Kelsong took one look at her trembling form and grimaced. He stepped carefully between her and Jenju, leveling his staff at his old friend. It looked much more like a weapon than a crutch now. No one in the house could tell me where you went, Rangi and Heiran included, he said to Jenju. You're saying I had no reason to be suspicious? Where's Yoon? Kelsung, Genju said, thrusting his hands toward Kiyoshi, trying to get his friend to see the bigger picture. That girl is the Avatar. I saw her firebend with my own eyes. Your hunch was correct. 
After so many years, we've found the Avatar. Kelsung hitched, his body processing the revelation. But if Jenju thought he could distract the monk to his advantage, he was mistaken. Where is Yoon? He repeated. Dead, Jenju said, giving up the ruse. We tried to commune with a spirit, but it went berserk. It took him. I'm sorry. No! Kyoshi shrieked. She couldn't let that go. She couldn't let him twist what had happened. You, you fed us to it. You threw Yun to that spirit like me to a wolf. You murdered him. You're right to be upset, Kiyoshi, Jenju said softly. I got so carried away with finding the Avatar that I lost my pupil. Yoon's death is my fault. I'll never forgive myself for this accident. He wasn't wailing with sorrow. That would have been too obvious an act. He kept the face that most people knew, the stoic, plain-speaking teacher. This was a game to him, with Kelsong as the piece in the center. Kiyoshi was gripped by a fresh bout of despair. If the monk believed his friend, the adult, the man of good repute, over her, Jenju's crime would be buried along with Yoon. She needn't have worried. Kiyoshi, Kelsong said, never taking his staff off Jenju. Stay behind me. Jenju rolled his eyes, his ploy having failed. I don't know what's going on here, Kelsong said. But I'm taking Kiyoshi, and we're leaving. He staggered, still weak from his injuries. She caught him by the shoulders and tried to keep him upright. The only way they could keep stable was by holding on to each other. Look at the two of you, Jenju said. What you're doing is you're coming home with me. Neither of you are in any shape to argue. Kelsung felt Kyoshi tremble through her hand on his back, felt her fear. He ignored his own pain and drew up to his full height. You will have nothing to do with Kyoshi for the remainder of your life, he said. You are no longer fit to serve the Avatar. The cut landed deep on Jenju. Where will you go? He roared, frenzied and frothing. Where? The air temples? The abbots will hand her back to me before you can finish telling your story. Have you forgotten how far you've fallen in disgrace with them? Didn't Tagaka jog your memory? Kelsung tensed into a solid carving of himself. The grain of his staff squeaked from how tightly he held it. I know everyone in the Four Nations who could possibly help you, Jenju said. I put out the message, and every lawman, every sage, every official will be tripping over their own feet to hunt you down on my behalf. Being the Avatar will not protect her from me. Kiyoshi, run! Kelsong shouted. He pushed her away and leaped at Jenju, bringing his staff down to create a gale of wind.
Genju brought Earth up to meet him. But they weren't fighting the same fight. Kelsong meant to blast his friend away, to knock the madness out of him, to overwhelm him with the least amount of harm done in the way of all air nomads. Genju shaved off a razor of flint no longer than an inch, sharp and thin enough to pass through the wind without resistance, and slice at where his victim was exposed and vulnerable. A spurt of blood came from the side of Kelsong's neck, from a finger-length cut so clean and precise, it was almost elegant. Genju's expression flickered with a sadness that was deeper and truer than what he'd given to Yoon as he watched his friend fall. Kelsong collapsed to the ground, his head bouncing lifelessly off the hard-packed earth. Those were the last things Kiyoshi saw before the white glow behind her eyes took over her entire being. The Inheritance One time when she was ten or thereabouts, a traveling fireworks vendor came to Yokoya. The village elders, in an unusual fit of decadence, paid him to put on a show celebrating the end of the first harvest. Families packed the square, gazing up at the booming, crackling explosions racing across the night sky. Kyoshi did not see the display. She lay on the floor of someone's tool shed, twisted by fever. The morning after, the heat in her skull forced her awake at dawn. She staggered around the outskirts of town, seeking cool air, and found the field where the vendor set his explosives the night before. The ground was scorched and pitted, utterly ravaged by a fiend born of no natural element. It was covered in a layer of ash and upturned rocks, water creeping in slow black rivulets, the wind smelling like rotten eggs and urine. She remembered now being suddenly terrified that she'd catch blame for the destruction. She'd run away, but not before scuffing her footprints off the path she'd taken. When Kiyoshi regained her vision, she thought for a moment she'd been thrown back in time to that unreal, violated landscape. The trees were gone behind her, snapped at their trunks and torn by their roots to expose damp clumps of soil. Before her, it was as if some great hand had tried to sweep away the mountainside in a convulsion of fear and shame. Deep rips crisscrossed the stone like claws. The hilltops had been pushed over, the traces of landslides pouring down from their crests. Kiyoshi had the vague notion that she was too high up, and she couldn't see Kelsung anywhere. She'd wiped away his existence. There was an animal howl floating on the wind, the scream of rosin on warped strings. It came from her. Kyoshi dropped to the ground and lay there, her face wet with tears. She pressed her forehead to the earth, and her useless cries echoed back in her face. Her fingers closed around the dust, sifting for what she'd lost. It was her fault. It was all her fault. 
She'd pushed Kelsung away instead of listening to him, allowed cowardice to rule her thoughts and actions. And now, the source of light in her life was gone. She had nothing left. Not even the air in her lungs. The heaving sobs coursing through her body wouldn't allow her to breathe. She felt like she was going to drown above water, a fate she would have accepted gladly. A just punishment for an unwanted girl who'd squandered her second chance. Kelsong, a miraculous, loving father conjured from thin air. And she'd cursed him with death and ruin. There was a tremor in the distance. The rubble around a certain spot was sinking, parting. Someone had escaped the havoc she'd wreaked in the Avatar state by burrowing deep down in the earth. Now, he was tunneling back to the surface, ready to claim his property. Kiyoshi scrambled to her feet in a blind, wild panic. She tried to run in the direction they'd come, stumbling past landmarks she prayed she remembered correctly. The baked ruins of the mining villages were so similar in their crumbling appearance that for a second, she thought she was caught in a loop. But then, right as her legs were about to give out, she found Pung Pung waiting where they'd left her. The bison took a whiff of Kyoshi and bellowed mournfully, rearing on her back four legs before crashing down hard enough to shake the dirt. Kyoshi understood. Maybe Pung Pung had felt her spiritual connection with Kelsung dissipate, or maybe Kyoshi simply smelled of his blood. He's gone, she cried. He's gone, and he's not coming back. We have to leave, now. Pung Pung stopped thrashing, though she looked no less upset. She allowed Kyoshi to climb on her back, using fistfuls of fur as a ladder, and soared into the air in the direction of home without being told. Yokoya, Kyoshi corrected herself. Not home. Never again home. Yokoya. She stayed back in the passenger's saddle. She was unwilling to straddle Pung Pung's withers in Kelsong's place, and the bison didn't need guidance for the return journey. From high up in the sky, she could see dark, rain-filled clouds approaching over the ocean in the opposite direction. If they flew fast enough, they could reach Yokoya before meeting the storm. Hurry, please, she shouted, hoping Pung Pung could understand her desperation. They'd managed to strand Jenju in the mountains, but the man's presence felt so close behind. As if all he needed to do was reach his arm out for her to feel his hand clamping down on her shoulder. That same year she'd caught sick and suffered through the fireworks, Kelsung had returned to the village. He looked askance at the farmer who swore that Kiyoshi had been well taken care of with the money he'd left behind. The weight she'd lost and her pallid skin told a different story. Afterward, Kelsung promised Kiyoshi that he'd never leave her for so long again. But Kiyoshi had long forgotten about any nights she'd spent ill without medicine. She'd been more concerned with the new kite-flying craze that had taken hold of the village children. For weeks, 
brightly colored paper diamonds and dragons and gull wings had hypnotized her from the sky, dancing on the wind. Not surprisingly, she hadn't the supplies or guidance to make one of her own. Kelsong noticed her staring longingly at the kites dotting the sky while they shared a meal outside. He whispered an idea in her ear. Together, they scavenged and spliced enough rope for him to tie one end around his waist. That afternoon, he took off soaring on his glider, while Kyoshi held the other end from below. They laughed so loud, they could hear each other across the great heights. For her, he was the biggest, fastest, best kite in the whole world. She'd misjudged the weather. The first drops of rain pattered on her cheek, waking her from her slumber of exhaustion. She and Pung Pung still had some ways to go when it quickly became a torrent that blotted out the sun. They narrowly managed to get down to Yokoya in time to avoid the lightning spreading its fingers across the sky. They arrived at the mansion. Kiyoshi jumped off Pung Pung near the stables and landed ankle deep in mud. She waded through the blinding rain to the house. The staff and the guests had been driven inside to their quarters. The ride had given her time to think, and she'd concluded that every decision from here on out was easy. An inevitability she would follow into the darkness. The only person who could have made her falter was waiting inside the servant's entrance for her, under the archway of the wall. Rangi looked like she had confined herself to this area the entire day. She'd worn out a groove in the floor with her pacing back and forth. Kyoshi, where were you? Rangi said, a scowl on her face from having been left in the dark for so long. What happened? Where are the others? Kiyoshi told her everything. About the powerful and terrible spirit that had identified Kiyoshi as the Avatar. About the way Genju had offered Yun up as a sacrifice and murdered Kelsung when he came to rescue them. She even included how she'd entered the Avatar state. Rangi stumbled backward until she knocked her head against a support beam. What? She whispered. That's not... What? That's what happened, Kyoshi said. She dripped rainwater on the floor, each plip another precious second lost. I have to go. I can't stay here. Rangi started pacing again, running her fingers through the ends of her hair, which had fallen loose. There's got to be a misunderstanding, an explanation. You said there was a spirit. It must have played tricks on your mind. That's been known to happen. Or maybe you simply got confused. Master Janju can't have... He wouldn't. She watched Rangi attempt to will a different reality into existence. It was the same trap Kiyoshi had fallen into the day Kelsung told her she might be the Avatar. We've got to get to the bottom of this, Rangi said. When Jinju gets home, we'll make him explain himself. We'll find out what really happened to Yun and Master Kelsung. Rangi? They're dead. I have to go. Throughout the journey back, Kyoshi had been thinking only about the shards of her life 
buried on that mountain. She'd forgotten there was still one more piece. And Rongi's stunned silence let her know she'd lost that too. Kiyoshi pushed past her without saying goodbye and headed to her room. It was easy to fill a sack with her clothes. She barely had any. She was going to leave everything on her shelf behind, but the thought of Kelsung made her grab the clay turtle and throw that in. The item that gave her pause was the beautiful green battle outfit that she'd worn on the iceberg and was now hanging on her wall. For some reason, Jenju had let her keep it in her room. The thought of taking, of using a gift from him made her insides clench. But she would need armor like that where she was going, a protective shell. She took it down, hastily rolled it up, and stuffed it in the sack. The leather journal went on top. She was truly grateful she'd never given in to her urge to destroy the book. In the past, it may have been incriminating evidence, but now it was a war plan. Tucking the bundle under one arm, she stooped down, grabbed the handle of her trunk with the other, and dragged it out into the hallway. The corners of the trunk screeched as they gouged out a trail in the polished wooden floors. She supposed the reason that no one stopped her was that they were scared. She saw the hems of robes disappearing around corners, frightened whispers behind closed doors as she passed. The guardsmen, she remembered, had been decimated on the iceberg, and there had always been an undercurrent of suspicion in the way the other servants looked at her. Now her aberrant behavior must have pushed it over the edge into fear. She looked like a swamp ghost, dripping with the water she'd drowned in. She could only imagine what terrors her face held. Each fork in the hallway brought another flash of raw, saw-bladed pain to her heart, as if she were one of the target dummies in the courtyard, collecting jagged arrows with her body. The routes she'd taken in her daily life unfolded down the corridors of the mansion, leading inevitably over and over again to the dead. The way to Yoon's room, the one area he never let her clean, flustering over his privacy. The path to the little nook where Kelsong would meditate when the weather was too harsh. The grass where the three of them had spat watermelon seeds, only to run away when Auntie Mui yelled at them for making a mess. She would never tread these lines again. She would never arrive to see Yoon and Kelsung's smiling faces at the end of her steps. By design, Kiyoshi took the long way past the wood chopping station. The splitting mall was there, the wedge buried in the block. Kiyoshi placed her bag between her teeth and picked up the mall with her free hand. The entire block came with it, stuck to the blade. So she smashed the whole agglomeration against the wall until the heavy tool was freed from the wood. She kept walking. Outside, the rain had doubled. The interval between lightning and thunder was non-existent. She dropped her bag and flung the heavy wooden trunk in front of her. It slid in the mud before coming to a stop. The chest had been a focal point for her anger in the past, collecting the flows of her hatred like the water barrels positioned under the gutters of the house. It had been left behind in Yokoya like her, 
by the people who'd relegated her to the life of a starving, desperate, unloved creature for so many years before Kelsung came into her life. Her parents would have to take a lower place on the shelf for now. She had someone new to focus on. Another lightning flash illuminated which side the iron lock was on. Raising the maul high above her head with both hands, she swung it down, aiming for the weakest point. The wedge of the maul bounced off the metal. The trunk sank deeper into the mud. She struck it again, and again, and again. The thunder and rain drowned out her senses, leaving her with nothing but the painful vibrations rebounding up the haft of the maul into her hands. She struck again and felt a crunch. Rather than the lock breaking, the trunk had splintered where the metal was fastened to the wood. But it was open. Kiyoshi tossed them all aside and raised the creaking lid. Inside were two ornate metal war fans, the color of gold alloyed with bronze. The weapons were packed in a softer wood frame that held them open while protecting them from rough treatment, like the sort she'd just doled out. A headdress made out of the same material rested in between them. It complemented the fans by mounting smaller versions of them on a band, forming a semicircular crest at the forehead. Lastly, there was a plain leather pouch with a case that she knew contained makeup. A lot of makeup. She snatched each item from its moorings. The headdress and fans were much sturdier than they appeared. They were meant to be worn and wielded in combat, after all. They and the pouch went inside her bag. The trunk served no further purpose and would be left in the mud. With that, Kiyoshi was finished. She was taken aback at how completely and utterly finished she was. How little she had put on display how much she'd lost like the black night sky around the burst of a firework. She'd held on too hard to a treasure that might have been shaped like a home and a family, only to discover that her touch had dissolved it entirely. She wiped her eyes with her forearm and ran around the edge of the mansion, slipping and falling in the rain at least twice, and reached the stables. There was a shock waiting for her. Rongi was busy securing bedrolls, tents, and other bales of supplies to Pung Pung's saddle. She looked up at Kiyoshi from under the hood of her raincloak. Let me guess, she shouted over the downpour, pointing at several waterproof baskets and sacks of grain. You didn't pack any food, did you? She reached down, grasped Kiyoshi's hand, and pulled her onto Pung Pung's back. Then she hopped into the driver's seat and took up the reins. We'll have to fly low and head southwest, out of the storm. Kiyoshi's throat was a solid lump. Why are you doing this? I have no idea what's going on right now, Rangi said over her shoulder. She flicked rain off her brow. Her face underneath looked like she was heading into combat. But I'm not going to let you ride off on your own and die in this storm. You won't last an hour without help. Kiyoshi nodded, stricken dumb with gratitude to Rangi. For Rangi. She pleaded with the spirits that it wasn't a final cruel trick, the form of her friend sitting before her. 
she maintained a safe distance so as not to dispel the precious vision. The firebender snapped Pung Pung's reins with authority. Up, girl, Rungi shouted. Yip, yip. The Decision The sunrise after the storm had no idea what Kiyoshi had been through. It shined its warm hues of orange through the clouds like a loud bore of a friend insisting that everything would work out. The waves below flowed neatly under the steady breeze, making it appear that they were flying over the scaled skin of a giant fish. Fighting the weather throughout the night had blasted them, body and mind. Pung Pung's flight path was starting to ramble, but they were no longer in danger from wind and lightning. It was as good a time as any to address the other life-shattering piece of news. Rangi rubbed at the dark shadows under her eyes. You're the Avatar, she said. She spread her fingers and stared at the back of her hands, checking whether she was intoxicated or dreaming. After all of this, it's you. You really had no idea until now? Kiyoshi shook her head. I don't know what went wrong with the search when we were younger, but from what Kelsung told me, it sounded like a complete mess. No one knew. Not even... It was difficult to spit out his name. Not even Jenju. I've never heard of this happening before, Rangi said. She closed and opened her fists to make sure they were still working. At least not in Fire Nation history. When the Fire Sages reveal the Avatar, it's a done deal. Kyoshi fought the urge to roll her eyes, of course, in the Fire Nation, the caravans arrived on time, and the identity of the most important person in the world was never in doubt. And then, there's a festival, Rangi said, lost in thought. According to tradition, there's a celebration bigger than Twin Sunday. We eat special foods like spiral-shaped noodles. School is canceled. Do you know how rare it is for school to be canceled in the Fire Nation? Rangi, what does that have to do with anything? The firebender stretched her elbows behind her back, her mind made up. My point is that there are set ways this is supposed to pan out, she said. If you're the Avatar, you need the trappings of the Avatar. We need to find masters who know what they're doing to recognize your legitimacy and give you the right guidance. Rangi vaulted over the saddle edge onto Pung Pung's neck and took up the reins. The bison dipped lower over the shimmering water. Up ahead, a small crag jutted from the surface, a finger of rock poking through the ocean sheet. It was too steep for ships to use it as a dock, but there were a few level surfaces near the top, covered in soft green moss. I'm going to drop you off here, where you can camp safely, Rangi said. There's a protocol in the event the compound came under attack and I had to flee with the Avatar. Those bags were pre-packed. There's everything you need for a week in them. Once I return to the village and figure the situation out, I'll bring someone who can help. No! She couldn't go to another master, especially not a well-known one.
any earthbender in a position to aid her was more likely than not to be part of Jinju's web. Looking back on her time at the house, she'd seen the evidence of his reach every day. The gifts, the ceremonious visits, and the dictated letters were simply tokens that marked the flow of power and control in the Earth Kingdom. And for as long as she'd known, it all filtered up to Jenju. Kyoshi scrambled over to Rongi and yanked the reins out of her hands. Peng Peng swerved to the side and roared in complaint. Stop that, Rongi shouted. Rongi, please, you'd only be sending me right back into his hands. Kyoshi nearly bit through her tongue as she remembered the horror Jianju unleashed from deep within the mountain, and his complete callousness while he did so. Rangi couldn't have known the extent of her fear. Kyoshi was certain the man hadn't shown that side of himself to anyone but her and Yoon. Rangi fought with her for the reins. Let go, you're being ridiculous. Rangi, as your avatar... I command you. The firebender recoiled like she'd been struck by a whip. The order wasn't one of Yoon's jokes. It was an exploitation of Rangi's oath to protect and obey the Avatar. An attack on her honor. Rangi blew a long strand of black hair out of her face. It didn't go very far, the end of it sticking to her mouth. I suppose I have to get used to you saying that. There was an agonizing distance in her voice, and Kyoshi despised it. She didn't want a professional bodyguard obeying her orders. She wanted her Rangi, who scolded her without hesitation and never backed down. They spent a long time in silence, listening to the breeze pick up. Yoon is gone, Rangi said. He's really gone. Her voice seemed thin, drawn out by the passing wind, like the notes of a flute. She sounded hollow inside. Kyoshi had no comfort to give her. Both of their lives had centered around duty. Kyoshi's for the sake of survival, Rangi's for pride and glory. But Yoon had managed to pierce both their shells. Their friend had been stolen. And as far as Kyoshi was concerned, there was a single path laid out before her that she could take in response, lit by the clean, bright fires of hatred. I'm not ready to confront Jianju, Kyoshi said. I'm not nearly strong enough yet. I have to find bending masters who can teach me to fight and who aren't in his pocket. In fact, it was more than that. She'd need teachers who were completely unknown to Jianju. If he suspected she was after training, he'd look for her in schools around the Four Nations. And she'd have to conceal she was the Avatar. That news would spread so fast, it would act as a beacon for Jianju, allowing him to close in on her before she was prepared. She didn't have a good idea how she'd obtain instruction in all four elements without giving the game up, but she'd make it work somehow. The idea sounded ludicrous in her head. It was ludicrous. And yet, Kyoshi knew she would walk off this cliff without hesitation.
She would stick both hands into a dragon's mouth if it meant the slightest chance she could pay back Genju what she owed him. Rongi dragged her hand down her face. Fine. Bending, masters. Where do you want to look first? You're talking like you have a plan, so let's hear it. You're not coming with me, Kyoshi said. I have to do this, alone. The firebender gave her a look of such utter contempt for that notion that it could have been grounds for an Agni Kai. Kiyoshi was afraid this might happen. Rongi's powerful faith, her need to fulfill her duty, would spiral around with no spot to land on but her. She had to stand strong. She'd lost so much already, and she wasn't going to risk her one remaining connection to this world on a fool's quest. You're not coming with me, Kyoshi repeated. As your avatar, I command you to stay behind. Rongi, I'm serious. She wanted to sound angry, but the effect was ruined by the overwhelming tide of relief she felt at Rongi's rejection of her demand. A strictly professional servant of the avatar couldn't disobey her, but a companion might. I have no idea how long this journey will take, Kyoshi said. And there are secrets about me that I haven't told you. Oh no, Kyoshi's keeping a secret from me, Rongi moaned an octave lower than normal. I think I'll be okay with whatever your little revelation is, given the last thing you sprung on me was only the most important piece of information on the planet. The crag passed them by, a silent onlooker that wanted no part of the conversation. The last marker of reason in an ocean of uncertainty. From this point onward, there was nothing but trouble ahead. But at least, Kyoshi had her friend back. We'll need rest, or we'll lose effectiveness, Rongi declared, nestling herself under the corner of a tarp that had come loose. If you've got a destination in mind, then I'm taking the first sleep shift. You owe me that much. Rongi. Kiyoshi tried one last time to growl in threat. Instead, the name came out like a dedication of thanks to the spirits for this fiery blessing of a girl. It was futile trying to mask how Kiyoshi felt toward her. Where you go, I go. The firebender rolled to her side and yawned. Besides, there's only one bison rocks for brains. We can't split up now. Despite how tired they were, Rangi only dozed fitfully, shivering, though it was no longer cold. Watching her from a distance, Kiyoshi had an answer regarding the little snips of breath she'd listened to for so long in their shared tent on the iceberg. It was how Rangi cried in her sleep. Every so often, she would burrow her face into her shoulders to wipe her tears. With their eyes on each other, it was easy to be brave. Maybe that's the only way we get through this, Kyoshi thought. Just never look away. She stared at the water until the sun's reflection became too much, and then reached for her single bag of belongings. 
digging around, she found the clay turtle. It was made of earth. It was tiny. She could use it for practice. Small, she thought as she cradled it with both hands. Precise, silent, small. She curled her lips in concentration. It was like crooking the tip of her pinky while wiggling her opposite ear. She needed a whole body effort to keep her focus sufficiently narrow. There was another reason why she didn't want to seek instruction from a famous bending master with a sterling reputation and wisdom to spare. Such a teacher would never let her kill Jinju in cold blood. Her hunger to learn all four elements had nothing to do with becoming a fully realized avatar. Fire, air, and water were simply more weapons she could bring to bear on a single target. And she had to bring her earth bending up to speed, too. Small, precise. The turtle floated upward, trembling in the air. It wasn't steady the way bent earth should be, more of a wobbling top on its last few spins. But she was bending it, the smallest piece of earth she'd ever managed to control. A minor victory. This was only the beginning of her path. She would need much more practice to see Jenju broken in pieces before her feet, to steal his world away from him the way he had stolen hers to make him suffer as much as possible before she ended his miserable, worthless life. There was a sharp crack. The turtle fractured along innumerable fault lines. The smallest parts, the blunt little tail and squat legs, crumbled first. The head fell off and bounced over the edge of the saddle. She tried to close her grip around the rest of it and cut only dust. The powdered clay slipped between her fingers and was taken by the breeze. Her only keepsake of Kelsung flew away on the wind. Adaptation Jenju pushed open the doors of his house to find it in static, silent chaos. The servants lined up in rows to the left and right, bowing as the master entered, forming a human aisle of deference for him to walk through. It was overly formal, a practice he'd dismissed long ago. He hadn't bothered to clean himself before entering, so he left a trail of dust and rubble in his wake. There was an ache in his chest as he passed the bashed-in door to his study, a testament to his airbender friend's great strength and personal conviction. He had no time to grieve for what had happened to Kelsung, he went straight to the Avatar's room in the staff quarters, followed the path of damage outside to the empty bison pen, and then back to his cowering servants in a loop. Can someone tell me what happened here? He said in what he thought was an admirably neutral, collected tone, given the circumstances. Instead of answering, they shrank further into their shoulders, quaking. Whoever spoke up first was sure to take the blame. They're afraid of me, he thought, to the point they can't do their jobs properly. He cursed the fact that the girl had no official supervisor watching her and pointed at his head cook, Mui. 
he'd seen the Avatar doing favors for the woman in the kitchen. Where is Kyoshi? he said, snapping his fingers. Mui went crimson. I don't know. I'm so sorry, master. None of us had ever seen her act that way before. She, she had a weapon. By the time we could find a guardsman, she was gone. Did any of the guests see her leave? Mui shook her head. Most of them left early to try and beat the storm, and the others were in their rooms in the far wing. He supposed it wasn't the middle-aged cook's fault that she was unable to stop a rampaging, axe-wielding teenager who could break a mountain whenever she remembered she had the ability. Genju dismissed the staff without another word. Better to have them uncertain, fearing his next command. He drifted through the halls of the house until he found himself in an aisle of the gallery, staring at some of his artwork, but not seeing it. That was where Heiron found him after she returned from an offshore meeting with the delegation from the Fire Navy. She frowned at his appearance, ever the disciplinarian. You look like you were spat out by a badger mole, she said. Better to tear off this bandage quickly. He told her the version of events she needed to hear. Kiyoshi being the true avatar, the disappearance of both Yun and Kelsong caused by a treacherous spirit, the avatar holding a grudge against him for it. She slapped him across the face, which was about as good a result as he could get. How can you stand there like that? She hissed, her bronze eyes darkening with fury. How can you just stand there? Genju worked his jaw, making sure it wasn't broken. Would you rather I sit? A less controlled person than Heiron would have been tempted to scream her disbelief to the skies, letting the secret out. You had the wrong avatar. You introduced a boy to the world as its savior and then got him killed. You let the real avatar run off to who knows where. Our oldest and closest friend is dead because of you. He was grateful for Heiron's iron character. She thought those things at him instead of saying them, fuming strategically. How are you not going to lose face over this? She whispered. All of your credibility? What are you going to do? I don't know. He leaned against the gallery wall, as surprised at his own response as she was. Out of Kuruk's companions, he had been the planner. Normally, Genju had every contingency, every fork in the road mapped out to its logical end. He found the change of pace rather liberating. Heron couldn't believe he was drifting like this. She pulled her lips back over her teeth. We can minimize the damage if we get her back quickly, she said. She can't have gone far on her own. She's a maid for crying out loud. I'll send Rangi to hunt her down. The two of them are friends. She'll know where Kyoshi would run to. Heron found the nearest summoning rope and gave it a yank. The soft yellow cables ran throughout the house, held by eyelets across certain walls. The bells at the other ends let the staff know where help was needed. Given that his employees were busy avoiding him like the plague, it was a minute or two before someone answered, 
Rin or Lin or whatever. The girl was out of breath, and she limped slightly, like she'd stubbed her toe in her hurry to arrive. Rin, please fetch my daughter, Heiran said kindly. Tell her it's very important. I'm so sorry, Rin shrieked. She was trying so hard not to mince her words in fright that she erred on the side of ear-splitting volume. Miss Rangi's disappeared. One of the stable hands said he saw her leave with Kyoshi last night. Rin, please leave my sight immediately, Heiran said with warmth of a different kind this time. The girl bowed and backed away, eyes lowered, her socked feet thumping a pattern down the hallway that was almost as fast and loud as her heartbeat. Jenju waited until she vanished around the corner. Before you hit me again, he said to Heiran, I believe whatever Rangi does is your fault, not mine. Her face contorted like she was living a thousand lifetimes right then and there, in most of which she melted his eyeballs using his skull as a cauldron. This is a positive, Jenju said. Your daughter will keep her safe until we find them. Until we find them? Hadon screamed in a whisper. My daughter is an elite warrior trained in escape and evasion. We can already forget about an easy chase. She thrashed in place, the waves of bad news buffeting her around, challenging her equilibrium. When she came to a stop, her face was lined with deep sorrow. Jenju, Kelsong is dead, she said. Our friend is dead. And instead of mourning him, we're standing here, plotting how to maintain our grip on the Avatar. What has happened to us? What have we become? We've grown old and become responsible as what, Jenju said. Kelsong made the same promise to Kuruk that we did. We can honor his memory, both of their memories, by continuing on our path. He found his usual energy coming back, his dalliance with helplessness finished. There had been too many futures to consider before. The individual degrees of catastrophe were overwhelming, but really, he only needed to focus on one solution. The peace that was critical to every scenario. We'll get the Avatar back, he said. Finding her ourselves would be ideal, obviously, but it'll be fine if she turns up on the doorstep of another sage to seek refuge. I'll find out and respond quick enough to smother the news from traveling further. He wasn't worried about the Avatar hiding in the other nations either. His personal networks extended further than the Earth King's diplomacy. If anything, his foreign contacts would inform him faster and with more discretion, hoping to avoid an international incident. And what if she falls in with one of Hui's allies? Heiran asked. Jenju grimaced at the mention of the Chamberlain's name. I suppose that's always a risk. But I'm fairly certain she wouldn't know who he is, or which masters he's got his hooks into. 
I don't even know who sided with him yet. Genju got off the wall. My reputation will certainly take an unavoidable hit once we have to reveal her identity to the world. But that won't matter in the end, he said. As long as the girl is back here when we do it, under my roof, following my orders, it will all work out. I have capital to burn within the Earth Kingdom. Time to put it to good use. Heiran grudgingly appreciated her friend's return to his usual self. It doesn't sound like the girl wants to be here. We'll worry about that later. Besides, she's still a child. She'll learn what's in her best interests. He dusted himself off. The first attempt he'd made to get rid of the filth of the mining town so far. The plan molded itself together in his head, like clay under the guidance of an invisible tool. I need you to write a letter for me. Heiran looked at him sideways. I know, I know, he said. You're not my secretary. But there has to be a Fire Nation stamp on this message. Fine. Who's it to? Professor Shaw, head of zoology at Ba Sing Se University. Tell him you're interested in borrowing some specimens he brought back from his latest expedition. You want to display them in the Fire Nation, because they're so very adorable and cuddly, as part of a goodwill tour between our countries. Genju eyed the piece of art behind him, a painting of the northern lights on vellum by a master water tribe artist. He grabbed its wide frame with his outstretched hands and ripped it off its moorings. Send him this as well to butter him up. It's worth more than what he makes in a year. Heiran seemed slightly disgusted by his reliance on bribery, but that was an Earth Kingdom cultural quirk that people from the other three nations often had trouble getting used to. Which adorable and cuddly animals are we talking about? She said. Genju twisted his lips and sniffed. The Shershoes. The Introduction Kyoshi struggled to open the small metal box. She'd opened the visible latch, yes, but no matter how hard she gripped and twisted the container, the false bottom that concealed the true contents wouldn't budge. You can't force it, a gentle voice said. Use too much strength, and it's liable to break. The goods would spill everywhere. You don't want to leave a trail behind, do you? Kyoshi looked up from the floor to see a tall, beautiful woman with freckles splashed across the tops of her cheeks and serpent tattoos running down her arms. Next to her was a man, stocky and strong, his face bedecked in red and white makeup. The streaks of crimson met each other to form a wild, animalistic pattern, but his expression underneath was warm and mirthful. The metal box suddenly grew hot, singeing Kyoshi's flesh, and she dropped it. She tried to shout and found her teeth loose and swimming in her mouth. The painted man wiped his face, and in the streaks between the colors, 
His features had turned into Genju's. Kiyoshi surged forward with rage, but couldn't close the distance. The woman found her helplessness amusing and winked at her with a green glowing eye. Her eyeball swelled and swelled, growing so large that it burst out of its socket and kept expanding until it consumed her other eye. And then the entirety of her face and then the four corners of the world. Kiyoshi flailed in terror inside the cavernous darkness of its pupil, trying to reach solid ground. We'll never leave you, Genju whispered. You'll always have us in the distance, behind you, right next to you, watching you. The two of us will always be there for you. At the height of her panic, a hand gripped Kyoshi by the shoulder. The warmth and solidness of it told her not to flinch, not to worry. She sat up slowly and blinked in the fading daylight. Wake up, Rangi said. We're here. Rangi insisted on making a single pass over Chameleon Bay before landing. She leaned off Pung Pung's side, drawing in the layout of the ramshackle port town with the single-mindedness of a buzzard wasp, as if every trash-strewn alley and patchy roof were vitally important. Kiyoshi let Rangi take her time. She needed a moment to make sure she'd fully climbed out of the depths of her nightmare. After she collected her thoughts, she joined in on looking. To Kiyoshi, the mass of buildings was indistinguishable, a curving scab around the bay that should have been picked off long ago. There was only one location that she was interested in, the one that matched the description in her journal. There, she said, pointing at one of the few structures that rose above a single story. The yellow roof stood out among its green neighbors like a diseased leaf. That should be Madame Chi-Gi's tea house. They pulled up, retracing their route through the sky. There was no place to land Pung Pung within the town limits, and a sky bison with no airbender on it was surely one of the first signs Genju would order his network to search for. The reconnaissance sweep itself had risks. The small cops they found on the outskirts felt like a dose of luck. Perhaps their reserves of good fortune would be drained by the simple act of hiding Pung Pung in the trees. We'll be back, girl, Kyoshi said to her, stroking the beast's nose. Pung Pung gently bumped her with her skull, telling her they'd better. Kyoshi and Rongi set out on foot, the pressure of firm ground against their souls, a welcome sensation after so much flying. As they followed a dirt path into Port Chameleon Bay, they were treated to a ground-level view of the town in all its glory. It was a miserable sight. For the past nine years, Kyoshi had never laid eyes on open flatland going to waste without some attempt to grow food on it but the dusty, hard-packed fields they passed through made it clear it wasn't worth trying. The ground here was rawhide, impenetrable. The port sustained life in the barest sense. They encountered a surrounding band of slums, wooden lean-tos and moth-eaten tents. 
The inhabitants stared at them with glassed eyes, not bothering to adjust their bodies from where they sprawled. The few who stood up, in wariness that they might be hostile, were hunched by malnutrition and sickness. People shouldn't live like this, Rongi said. Kiyoshi felt her sinews tying into knots. They can, and they do, she said as casually as she could. That's not what I mean. Rongi rubbed her own elbow, considering the pros and cons of what she was about to say. I know about the time you spent in Yokoya on your own, before Jen, before Master Kelsong took you in, even though you tried to hide it from me. Kyoshi's stride faltered, but she gathered herself and kept going. They couldn't stop here simply because her friend wanted to have a heart-to-heart about one of the oldest, deepest scars running through her soul. Auntie Mui told me, Rangi said. Kyoshi, you should never have been put through that experience. The thought of the other villagers ignoring you when you needed them, it makes me sick. That's why I was always pushing you to fight back. Kyoshi laughed bitterly. She'd long laid the blame for those years on a different party than the Yakoyans. What was I supposed to do? Drop the mountain on them? Smack around a bunch of children half my size? Anything I did would have been completely disproportionate. She shook her head, wanting to change the subject. Anyway, is the Fire Nation so perfect that prosperity gets shared with every citizen? No, Rangi said, her lips scrunched to the side. But maybe one day it could be. They entered the town proper the edges marked by a change to brick and clay shanties, some of them earth-bent into being, and others laid by hand. The streets twisted and angled like they'd been set over animal paths instead of following human needs. If it hadn't been for the landmark of the tea house jutting above the roofline, Kiyoshi would have been lost after a few steps. The merchants who'd closed up shop for the night had done so with vigor, coating their storefronts in so many locks and iron bars that she wondered how some of them afforded the expense. A number of deer dogs, hidden behind walls and fences, set off barking as they passed. No one bothered them, thankfully. Reaching the tea house felt like making it through a field of trip wires. Madame Chigi's was an island in the haphazard layout of the town, ringed by the broadest avenue of open space they'd seen so far. It was as if someone had aggressively claimed the public square and plunked down the wooden building in the center. Light flickered through the paper windows. They stepped onto the large, creaking porch, approaching cautiously. There was an old man sprawled across the doorway, wrapped in canvas blankets, blocking their entry. His loud snores caused his wispy white beard to flutter like cobwebs in the breeze. Kiyoshi was debating whether to prod him gently or try leaping over him when he woke up with a start, grumbling at the impact his shoulder made with the doorframe. He blinked at her and frowned. Who are you? He mumbled. She noticed his hands shaking as they poked out from his cocoon. From hunger, no doubt. 
She hadn't given enough thought to money as she made her get away from the mansion, but there were a few coppers in the pockets she'd sewn into her dress long ago. She fished the coins out and placed them on the porch in front of him. If the instructions in her journal were correct, she and Rangi wouldn't have any need for money once they were inside. Get yourself something to eat, grandfather, she said. The old man smiled at her, his wrinkles clawing over his face. But his happy expression turned to outright shock when Rangi added a silver piece to the pile. Kiyoshi glanced back at her. What? Rangi said. Were we just talking about this kind of thing? The inside of Madame Chi-Gi's was only halfway finished. The ground level was dedicated to serving food and drink. Tables for visitors were arranged over a layer of straw and sand. But where there should have been a second floor with rooms for overnight guests and weary travelers, there was no floor. Doors floated in the walls, twelve feet off the ground with no way to reach them. No mezzanine, no stairs. The handful of hooded figures sitting in the corners didn't seem to think that was unusual. Nor did they look up as Kyoshi and Rangi came in. If anything, they leaned farther into their cups of tea, trying to remain inconspicuous. Kyoshi and Rangi took seats in the middle. Near them was an exquisite, heavily constructed pie show table, by far the nicest object in the room. It sat on four sturdy legs, surrounded by ratty floor cushions, a jewel nestled in the petals of a wilted flower. They were in the right place. And they were in the right chairs. It was supposed to be only a matter of time before someone came over and said the phrase she was waiting for. For Kiyoshi, it was an eternity. The pie show table was an agonizing reminder of Yoon, and she didn't need a visual aid to feel the raw wound of losing Kelsong. That pain was a bleeding trail leading back to Yokoya. It would never wash away. Rangi kicked her chair. A man made his way over to them. A young man, really, a boy. Each step he took into the better-lit center of the room regressed how old he looked. His sleeves were bound with thin strands of leather, and he wore head wraps in the style of the Siwong tribes. They hung loose around his face and neck, framing his barely contained fury. Kiyoshi could sense Rangi getting ready for the worst, gathering and storing up violence to unleash if things went wrong. What would you like to drink? The boy said through his teeth. Here it was. The moment of truth. If the instructions in the journal were wrong, then her vaunted single path forward would be cut off at the first step. Jasmine picked in fall, scented at noon, and steeped at a boil, Kyoshi said. Such a combination didn't exist, or if it did, it would have tasted like liquid disaster. The reply came out of his mouth like it needed to be dragged by Komodo rhinos, but it was the reply she was looking for. We have every color blossom known to man and spirit, he said. 
red and white will suffice, she replied. He clearly had been hoping for any response but that one. Lao Gu, the boy suddenly shouted toward the door. You were supposed to keep watch, you useless piece of dung. The old man who'd been lying across the porch leaned halfway inside. He was suddenly much less infirm than when they'd first met. I was standing guard, but then those two lovely young women gave me enough money to buy a drink or ten, he said with a big toothy grin. They must have slipped by me while I stepped out to the wine shop. Quite the tricksters, those two. He tilted a liquor bottle to his lips and drank deeply, his ragged sleeve falling down his arm to reveal sheaves of corded muscle under papery skin. The boy ground the heel of his hand into one of his eyes. He stormed away to the kitchen, muttering expletives at the old man the whole way. Kyoshi could sympathize. Rangi leaned on the table. Though her pose was relaxed, her eyes fluttered around the room, sizing the occupants up, including, and especially, Lao Gu, who was busy finding the bottom of his second bottle of drink. You know, she whispered to Kyoshi, you told me we were going to a Daofei hideout. You told me you were going to get access to help through Daofei code. Here we are. I heard you speak it, and yet I still can't believe this is happening. It's still not too late for you to get out of here and save your honor, Kyoshi said. It's not my honor I'm worried about, Rangi hissed. Before they could get further into the matter, the boy returned with a tray of steaming cups. He placed one in front of Kyoshi, Rangi, and then himself, taking a seat across from them. He was much calmer now. It may have had less to do with the tea than with the backup that slowly filed in behind him. A huge man in his thirties, as tall as Kelsung and half again as thick, blotted out the lamplight coming from the kitchen. He had a smooth, clean-shaven face over a body that threatened to burst from expensive robes, his clothes having been chosen for flash over fit. Kiyoshi saw Rangi's eyes dart to the man's feet instead of his scarred knuckles or protruding gut, and realized why. As big as he was, he hadn't made the floorboards creak. One of the doors suspended in the wall above the ground flew open. A young woman stepped out of the room, not caring about the drop that awaited her. She was dressed in an Earth Kingdom tunic, but with a fur skirt over her trousers. Kiyoshi had seen pelts like that worn by visitors from the poles. The stronger indication of the woman's water tribe heritage was her piercing sapphire blue eyes that no amount of spider snake formula could possibly hide. She landed on the ground with her toes pointed like a dancer's. Kiyoshi could have sworn she'd fallen slower than normal, a feather's descent. It was the only way to explain how she made the journey from the second story to the table without breaking stride or the bones in her foot. She stood behind the other shoulder of the boy, her wolf-like features unreadable, as she assessed Kyoshi and Rangi. I'm not afraid, Kyoshi told herself, finding to her surprise 
that it was true. She'd tussled with the Lord of the Eastern Sea. A single street-level Daofei crew wasn't going to intimidate her. The boy in the desert hat tented his fingers. You come in here, total strangers, unannounced, he said. I have the right, Kyoshi said. I gave the passwords. You are obligated to provide me and my partner succor by the oaths of blood you have taken, lest you suffer the punishments of many knives. You see, that's just it, the boy slouched back in his chair. You're using these big, old-timey words, like you've got these grand ideas of how this is supposed to work. You rattle off a senior code that we haven't heard in years, like you're pulling rank on us. You did it like you were reading from an instruction manual. Kiyoshi swallowed involuntarily. The boy noticed and smiled. He tilted his head at Rongi. Coupled with the fact that Gorgeous over here practically screams army brat, it makes me think the two of you are lawmen. We're not, Kiyoshi said, swearing silently inside her head at how badly this was going. We're not abiders. There were three men scattered around the tea house who were not part of their little confrontation. They all hastily plunked down coins and beat it out the door, eyes wide with fright. The boy placed a small hard object on the table with a click. Kyoshi thought it was a pie show tile at first, but he withdrew his hand to reveal an oblong stone, polished smooth by a river or a grinder. I'm pretty good at spotting an undercover, the boy said. And I think this is your story. Your daddy bought you an officer's commission from a crooked governor, and the first thing you decided to do with it is play detective and come knocking on our door. He thumbed at Rangi. She was assigned to watch her back, but she didn't do a very good job, because you're here now, and you're going to die. The cause will be recorded as acute terminal stupidity. Kiyoshi could almost hear Rongi's thought process, counting the limbs of the three people across from them, calculating out the sequence of damage she'd inflict. I'm telling you, we're not lawmen. The boy angrily kneed the underside of the table hard, knocking over the teacups and spilling the liquid across the surface. Kiyoshi acted before she thought. But in retrospect, it was more about stopping Rongi than anything else. She kicked upward as well. The entire foundation of the tea house, the patch of earth it was built on, jumped by half an inch. The boy nearly fell out of his chair. His two bodyguards wobbled. The shocked looks on their faces said that didn't happen very often. Not with a large man's stability and the water tribe girl's impeccable balance. Kiyoshi spoke over the groans of resettling wood and the dust drifting in clouds around them. You're right, she said. I don't belong here. They didn't bum-rush her immediately, deciding that she needed to be attacked with caution. That bought her time to speak. The truth is that I despise Daofei, Kiyoshi said. I hate your kind. It makes me sick to be in your presence. You're worse than animals. Uh, Kyoshi, 
Rongi said as the big guy and the woman sidled into better flanking positions. Not sure where you're going with this. The boy remained where he was. Kiyoshi could tell he wanted to put up a brave front. So did she. But that doesn't matter right now, Kiyoshi said, staring through the hardening layer of rage in his eyes. You're going to give me everything I demand, because you are bound by your outlaw code. You will do as I say, because of your idiotic, clownish, make-believe traditions. Her blood sang in her ears. Her hand went to her belt. The man and woman would certainly interpret that as the signal to attack. She was aware of Rongi leaving her seat. Only by moving faster did Kiyoshi prevent complete disaster. She slammed one of the war fans on the table, its ribs spread wide to reveal the golden leaf. The waterbender and the big guy stopped in their tracks. The boy looked like someone had reached into his chest and seized his heart. Spirits above, Lauko said. That's Jess's fan. The sudden appearance of the old man at the table startled both sides equally. He'd managed to squeeze in between Rangi and Kyoshi without them noticing, and he leaned inward, giddily examining the details of the weapon. The boy leaped out of his seat. Where did you get that? He shouted. I inherited it, Kyoshi said, her pulse racing. From my parents. The water tribe girl looked at her with wonder. You're Jessa's daughter, she said. Jessa and Hark were your mother and father? Kiyoshi didn't know why she was getting more worked up over simple facts than the prospect of a brawl earlier. That's right, she said. It felt like her mouth had become her stomach, unwieldy and sour. My parents founded this group. They're your bosses. Our baby has come home, Lao Ge crowed. This calls for a drink. He stepped back so he could have room to pour a third bottle into his gullet. The boy was still angry, but in a different flavor now. We need to confer for a minute. He snatched up his rock from the table and pointed accusingly at Kyoshi. In the meantime, I suggest you get your story straight, because you have a lot of explaining to do. Yes, Rangi says. She does. Lao Ge perched on a table off to the side with his containers of booze, like a strange bird arranging shiny objects in its nest. The rest of the gang filed back to the kitchen without him. Given that they seemed to treat him like background furniture, Kyoshi could only do the same. She turned to Rangi and found the firebender giving her a critical stare. What? Kyoshi said. This happened exactly the way I said it would. We're in. This is the first step to gain access to this world. Rangi remained unmoved. I told you everything before we landed, Kyoshi said. The truth about my parents being Daofei smugglers who abandoned me in Yokoya? Rangi, you came in here with me knowing this. The words poured out of her in a churning waterfall. Her knee was jogging rapidly up and down. 
the motion did not escape Rangi's notice. As bizarre as it is for me to say this, your secret family history is not the issue, Rangi said. Don't you think you played that situation a little aggressively? That was news to Kyoshi, coming from her burn it first and ask questions later friend. It's the kind of behavior these people respect, she said. Tagaka knew we were calm and rational, and look what she tried to do to us. Rangi's teeth clicked. You didn't see yourself back there. It was like you were begging them to attack you. There's being brave, and then there's having a death wish. She reached out and clamped her hand on Kyoshi's leg to still the shaking. We're not in our element, Rangi said. You might have the keys to certain doors, but this is not our house. You have to be more careful. And if I back down from a few Daofei, I have no chance of standing up to Jianju. I'm sorry, all right, Kyoshi said. This argument wasn't going to resolve anytime soon, and the gang was coming back. The last thing they needed was to show a fractured front to the criminals they were trying to coerce. Rangi let it go, seeing the same value in unity. The Si Wong boy, water tribe woman, and bulky man arranged themselves in front of Kyoshi with great formality. She had often stood that way to greet important guests, always in the back of the group due to her height. The man made a gesture with one open palm down, and the other hand clenched into a fist on top. It was unlike any other greeting Kyoshi had witnessed, and made it seem like his right side was smashing the left for trying to steal food off a table. Flitting Sparrowkeet Wong, he said, bowing slightly. If he seemed embarrassed by having such a delicate-sounding nickname, he didn't show it. The lithe waterbender stepped forward and made the same pose, though in a slouchy way, to let everyone know she thought the concept of professional names silly. Karima, she said. Just Karima. Bullet Lek, the boy snapped with great pride. He had rearranged his head wraps behind his ears to a more dignified indoor style. Though some call me Skull Crusher Lek, or Lek of the Whistling Death. Kyoshi made sure not to mirror the faces that Wong and Karima made behind Lek's back, or the boy would have certainly been insulted. Kyoshi, she said. This is my associate, Rongi. Rongi made a little snort of disapproval that Kyoshi took to mean, oh, so we're giving them our real names now. How did you come to us tonight? Karima asked. Start as far back as you can. That far, huh? I don't remember much from when I was little, Kyoshi said. Though her legs had settled down, the front of her neck now ached with tension. Only that my parents and I never stayed in one place very long, and they never told me where. You could say I grew up in the Earth Kingdom. That would have been before any of you joined, Lao Gu said to the others. Jessa and Hark slowed down considerably for several years and barely ran any jobs. They never told me why they stopped gathering the old crew for so long. I thought maybe they'd quit the game. 
The old man's memory helped Kyoshi fit pieces together into a completed puzzle. The result was uglier than she'd imagined. Well, they must have wanted back in very badly, because they abandoned me in a farming village when I was five or six, she said. I can't be sure exactly when. I never saw them after that. Or forgave them. That can't be, Lex said. Jessa and Hark would never do that to family. They were the most loyal bosses anyone could ask for. You must be mistaken. Kiyoshi wondered what it would be like to pick him up like she did to that pirate and shake him until he saw spots. Karima intervened before she could explore the idea. Are you telling their own daughter what happened to her? The waterbender snapped at Lek. Shut up and let her finish. There's not much more to tell, Kyoshi said. I nearly died of neglect in that village before I was taken in by the household of a rich and powerful man, a sage. The only possessions I had to my name were my mother's gear and her journal, which had information about my parents' Daofei customs, obligations I could call on. It was an instruction manual, like you said. She glanced at Rangi. I kept my parents' past a secret from the village the whole time. Given how I was treated as an outsider, I don't think I would have fared well if the townsfolk knew I was also the spawn of criminals. Rangi clenched her jaw. Kiyoshi could tell she was thinking about the what-ifs, how their relationship might have been different had she known Kiyoshi was a tainted child from the start. Would she have looked past that? and befriended Kyoshi all the same? Or would she have condemned her to the rubbish heap like she'd done to Auma and Jay and the others? And one day, you just decided to leave and come here? Lex said. He was still incredulous, like a sequence of events that started with Kyoshi's parents being anything but perfect was not possible. I did not just decide, Kyoshi snarled, turning her attention back on him. The man whose house I lived in decided, when he murdered two people dear to me, I swore by the spirits that turn this world on its axis that I would make him pay for it. That's why I'm here, she said, pounding her fist on the table for emphasis. He's too powerful and influential to be brought down by the law, so I need the opposite side of the coin. I need my parents' resources. If they can give me one gift at all in this life, then let it be revenge for those I've lost. Her face was red. Kiyoshi felt ready to explode. She didn't know what she'd do if another door in the wall opened and her mother and father stepped out. It would have been as volatile and uncharted as her encounter with the cave spirit. Lex solemnly took his head wraps off and wrung them between his hands. His hair was sandy and cropped underneath. You came all this way to find Jessa and Hark, he said in a mournful mutter. Kyoshi, I'm so sorry. I don't know how to break this to you, but, but. Relief came like a monsoon. She did not have to meet them. She didn't have to discover what kind of person she was when the past unearthed itself and took solid form. 
What, are they dead or something? Kyoshi said, waving her hand at him flippantly. I don't care. A lie. Had they appeared in front of her, she might have had to run screaming from this room. Lex's grief was replaced by outrage, a funeral guest who caught her stealing the altar offerings. We're talking about your mother and father. They were taken by a fever three years ago. She found it so easy to be cruel now that she knew for certain they couldn't defend themselves. Wow, Kyoshi said. I guess there are some things you can't outrun, huh? His eyes goggled out of his head. How can you be so vile? No one in the Four Nations disrespects their own kin like that. They left me behind because I took up too much cargo space, Kyoshi said. So I would say it's a family tradition. She snapped the war fan closed, intending to punctuate her sentence in an intimidating way. Instead, the arms fell out of alignment, and the leaf folded the wrong way, ruining the effect. She would need to learn how to use it properly at some point. I'm not here to confront my parents or their ghosts, Kyoshi said. The raw, nervous energy coursing through her bones had slowed. I'm here to seek what's owed me by blood ties. She counted off on her fingers. I want access to safe houses in the bigger cities where I can stay hidden at length. I want introductions with the rest of the network, starting with the strongest benders. And most of all, I want training. Training until I'm strong enough to take down my enemy personally. A silence fell over the group. Karima made an awkward little choke. Kyoshi thought maybe she'd gotten some saliva down the wrong pipe. But then, the waterbender burst out laughing. Other cities, she guffawed. Let me guess, your journal mentioned secret bases in Bossing Say, Omashu, Gowling maybe, filled with a brotherhood of bandits who honor the old ways. I'll blow my trumpet, Wong said. I'm sure they'll come running. Kyoshi frowned. What's so funny? Karima spread her arms. This is our one and only base of operations. This is the network. Us. Whatever assistance you thought you could personally demand outside the law ends here, within these walls. Kiyoshi remembered the most tired she'd ever been in her life. It was not long after she'd been dropped in Yokoya, when she still saw the journal and chest as her birthright treasures, and not as incriminating evidence her parents wanted to ditch alongside her. She'd been chased away from every door, forced to drag the heavy trunk with her. It was a lot for a child to carry back then, even one as outsized as her. As the day wore on, the exhaustion had seeped into her fingernails and teeth. Her thoughts had turned gray. There had been no room in her body for hunger and thirst. It was all given over to fatigue. Kyoshi felt the same fragments of weariness threatening to undo her now. They drove into her joints like nails, beckoning her to give up. Looking at the Daofei before her, she saw it clearly now.
They weren't the vanguard of some shadow army she could use to march upon Jinju. They were haggard, hunted people. Like her. We've fallen on hard times, Wong said. She gathered he didn't speak much, so when he did, it was likely true and to the point. Crackdowns on smuggling across the Earth Kingdom have been pretty severe in recent years. We've been cut off from gangs in other cities without much news or any jobs to speak of. Your journal must be at least a decade old, with entries that go back further, Lex said. In those days, groups like ours had real influence. He stared at his hands like a deposed king, longing for the grip of his scepter. We had territory. The governors asked us for permission to do business. Lek, you would have been three years old during our heyday, Karima said. We hadn't even picked you up yet. He wheeled on her furiously. That means the rest of you should be more upset than me. We understand, Rungi interrupted. It's painful to know what should have been. Kyoshi detected a streak of satisfaction in her voice at the way things had turned out. The hole went no deeper than a dilapidated tea house and a few cup purses. As far as Rungi was concerned, they could still extricate themselves. Kiyoshi, we tried, she said. You did what you could, but this isn't what we came for. She glanced at the room doors and their unusual placement. We could stay here overnight, perhaps, but it'd be no safer than camping. We should get back to Pung Pung and fly to the nearest. Lex slammed his hands on the table. Fly? His voice broke with excitement. You flew here? The rest of the group perked up. Are you telling me you have a sky bison? Karima said. There was an interested gleam in her eye. Rangi cursed at her slip up. Why, Kiyoshi said, what difference would it make? Because now you have something we want, Karima said, while Lek bounced off the walls. Being Jessa and Hark's kid means we're obliged to keep you safe from harm. It doesn't mean we'll follow your orders or help you on some personal quest for vengeance. You want that level of commitment, then you make us an offer. No, Rangi snapped. Forget it. We're not giving you our bison. We're not giving you anything of the sort. Simmer down, top knot, Karima said. I'm merely suggesting a partnership. We need to get out of this dried up town to where the prospects are better. Kiyoshi wants training. We should travel together for a while. It's her best shot at finding earthbending teachers of ill repute. Hearing her, Kiyoshi suddenly realized she'd made a critical mistake. She'd shown her earthbending. While she greatly needed improvement in her native element, there wasn't a straightforward way to get training in the others without revealing she was the avatar. Rungi was still opposed to the idea. We didn't come here to revive a two-bit smuggling operation, she said to Kyoshi. We'd just be taking on more risk than we need. First of all, our operation was top-notch, Lex said, full of umbrage. And second, you two are the baggage here. You wouldn't last a day moving in our circles without a guide. 
For crying out loud, we almost killed you. Rangi narrowed her eyes. Is that your impression of what happened? She sounded perfectly willing to test his theory. Kiyoshi buried her face in her hands while they argued. Ideas that had been so clear in her mind before were becoming trampled and muddy. Her singular path turned out to be full of brambles and false turns. Lao Gu interrupted her wallowing by slamming an empty bottle on the table. He'd been forgotten until now, and his smile folded in on itself, like he was bursting with the world's best secret. I know it's a tough decision, my dear girl, he said, cocking his ear toward the door. But don't take too long. The police are coming. Escape. The sound of marching boots hitting the road filled the air. You stupid old man, Lex shouted. I'm never putting you on watch again. Finally, Lao Gu said. He winked at Kiyoshi. Officers wearing constabulary green hustled into the tea house. They fanned out along the sides to accommodate their numbers, reaching to the corners. Twenty or so, wearing quilted armor with single Dao broadswords on their backs. At the head of their formation, still in plain clothes, but now wearing the same headband adorned with the prefectural badge of the law as the others, were the same three men who'd been in the tea house earlier. Remind me again who's good at spotting undercovers, Lek? Karima snarled. In a moment of panic, Kiyoshi thought the officers had come for her on behalf of Janju. But that couldn't have been the case. If he'd sent out messengers immediately, they still wouldn't have beaten a bison. No, she thought with a grimace. They were here for the girl who'd walked into an outlaw hideout and started making demands with outlaw codes. She'd incriminated herself in public like a fool. In the name of Governor Dung, you are under arrest, the captain said. Instead of a sword, he pointed a ceremonial truncheon topped with the Earth King's seal at them, but it looked heavy enough to break bones regardless. Put down your weapons. Dung. The name brought more terror to Kyoshi's heart than a charging saber-toothed moose lion. Stout, red-nosed Governor Dung was a frequent visitor to Janju's house and one of his closest allies. Kiyoshi glanced at Rongi. The firebender's worried headshake confirmed her fear. If they got caught here tonight, the whole operation was over. They'd be back in Janju's grasp before his breakfast got cold. The captain did not like the eye contact between her and Rongi. I said, put down your weapons, he shouted, bristling for a fight. The Dao Fei looked at their empty hands in confusion. Kyoshi realized that unless the man felt particularly threatened by Lao Gu's bottles, the only armed one was she. The glinting war fan was still in her hand, its mate stuck in her belt. She stood up so that she could have room to yank the other fan out. The captain took a step back in astonishment. He'd interpreted her unfurling to her full height as a hostile act. He wasn't the first. Take them, he shouted to his men. There were so many of them. Crammed in the dark confines of the tea house, 
the police force seemed larger in number than Tagaka's marauders. Five of the officers made a beeline for Kyoshi, the obvious target. They were knocked down by a blast of fire. Kyoshi glanced back at Rongi again. She had her fist extended, her skin smoking. Her face was upset, but unrepentant. If they were in, they were in full measure. Rongi didn't do things by halves. Inspired by her decisiveness, Wong picked up Lao Ge and threw the drunkard bodily at the captain like a rag doll. Lao Ge's warlike screech as he flew through the air was the only sign that he'd agreed to the act. The two of them must have done it before. The element of surprise worked strongly in their favor as Lao Ge's wiry arms wrapped around the captain's neck and his legs scissored around the waist of his subordinate, becoming a human net. Another blast from Rongi sizzled past Kyoshi's ear. She no longer knew what was going on. Men closed in on her with swords drawn. She picked up the nearest, heaviest object, the pie-show board, by one of its legs, and swung it in an arc. The policemen were bowled over like wheat stalks by the dense wooden bludgeon. The ones who tried to block her wild strikes with their dao had their swords bent and crushed against their torsos for their trouble. Fresh officers ran in through the door, only to slip on a sheet of ice that Karima laid down, using nothing but the remaining wine from Lao Ge's stash. Kiyoshi jolted in surprise at the reserved, minimalist twirl of her wrists and fingers. For a moment, it looked like Tagaka of the Fifth Nation was fighting on her side. Girl! Lao Ge said, clamping swords inside their scabbards, wherever his bony fingers and toes could reach. Bump the table! She didn't have the same previous working relationship with him as Wong, but Kyoshi caught his drift. She raised her foot high and stomped the floor. The tea house jumped into the air again, this time tilted higher from the back. Lauga and several of the policemen fell through the door. The others were knocked prone, scrambling on the straw and frozen wine. Kiyoshi's new compatriots managed to stay upright, having seen the trick before. Out the other side, Lek yelled. What about Lao Ge? She hadn't meant to dump him into the thick of the enemy. He can handle himself. Move! She flung the pie show board at the nearest officers and followed the others through the kitchen. It was empty, just a little room with a clay stove that smoldered from the one attempt Lek had made at tea. Another door gave way, and they were in the town square behind the building. The passage had been disguised, painted over without a frame, and there were no windows. So it was the side of the house that was least well guarded by the police. Only two men held positions there. Kyoshi heard a zip-zip noise, and they crumpled to the ground before they could wave their swords. Lek tucked something back into his pocket. Where's your ride? Rongi answered which was good, because Kiyoshi had lost her bearings and had no idea. Southwest corner of town, she said. If everyone follows me, I can get us there. There was a harsh scrape of clay from above. A whole section of roof tiles sloughed off and came crashing down at their heels as they ran. Reaching Peng Peng meant running along the edge of the square, seeking one outlet from the many cramped alleyways branching and forking in different directions, like the veins of a leaf. Kyoshi caught sight of the reason why they hadn't been swarmed by more lawmen. 
Lao Gu was tangling with a whole platoon of them by the main entrance. They slashed wildly at the air he occupied, only to come up empty every time. He folded and rolled his body like the wine still fogged his mind, dodging and flipping, his movements seemingly designed to taunt and frustrate them. Kiyoshi saw him leaning over at impossible angles, nearly parallel to the ground, and realized he was subtly earth-bending supports underneath his torso, changing his center of gravity to confound his opponents. We can't leave him, she shouted to the others. Apparently they could, because no one else gave Lao Gu a second thought. This one, Rangi said, darting down a passage into the darkness. But before anyone had a chance to follow, a thick stone wall shot up from the ground, reaching the height of the neighboring roofs, closing the exit off. The police force had brought earthbenders of their own. Lek kept running after her as if he were oblivious to the obstacle in his path. Kiyoshi thought he was going to dash his brains out against the wall. And then he did one of the most amazing things she had ever seen. He stepped up into the thin air. Lek ran higher and higher on invisible stairs. It was only after he'd gone above eye level that she saw how. The thinnest columns of earth she'd seen anyone earthbend shot up from the ground with each of his steps, anticipating where his foot would land next. They provided a moment's support, and then crumbled into dust immediately once his weight shifted off them. His rising path left no trace behind him. Kiyoshi had watched children around the village play by bending the ground they stood on into the air. It was sometimes a test of courage, who could make their pillar the highest, or a game of coordination, taking turns with a partner to seesaw back and forth. But it was always highly destructive to the ground, leaving jagged markers of what had happened. And the players had to remain still, or they'd fall off their platforms. Lek had none of those concerns. He floated, weightless, free of the Earth's pull. He stepped over the top of the wall and onto a rooftop before disappearing. The feat wasn't limited to earthbenders. Karima uncorked a small pouch at her waist, and wisps of water spilled forth, gathering under her feet. She stepped higher into nothingness, much as Lek had, only her stairs were powerful, thin little jets that provided the same resistance as earth. If the timing was more difficult for her, or the water less stable, she compensated with supreme grace. Wong glanced at Kiyoshi as if to check what she was thinking. You can't possibly, was what? He shrugged at her skepticism and followed his teammates skyward, using earth and dust as Lek had, like it was no big deal. The sight of the gigantic man defying all notions of gravity made her jaw drop. It looked less like bending and more like spiritual chicanery, an invisible hawk lifting Wong's bulk over the roof line. Kiyoshi watched him and Karima run over eaves and windowsills and the blank spaces of alley gaps with equal ease. The whole show had happened in less than seconds. It was a mind-blowing stunt, and highly unfortunate, because no one had taken into consideration that Kiyoshi could not do that. 
she expressly, with utmost certainty, could not do that. Cut her off, a policeman shouted behind her. A second slab of rock shot up to her right. Left, then. She sprinted for the nearest remaining avenue and made it out of the square before it was blocked shut. Immediately, she knew it was a mistake. The alley veered sharply away from the direction the others had gone. The forks in the narrowing street had no markers, and each subsequent guess she made only got her more lost. The houses squeezed in on her as she ran, promising to throttle her by the gills like a fish in a net. A blast of flame shot into the darkening sky, and then another, the source slightly to the right. Rangi was signaling to her where to go. Kiyoshi felt her heart skip a beat for her friend. It was either that, or a conniption from running at full speed for so long. She followed the upcoming bend in the direction of the fire, but so did the lawmen. In fact, they used their knowledge of the town layout to steal a march on her, suddenly popping into view closer behind her. She couldn't double back. And up ahead, a dead end loomed. The alley had been walled up with bricks. No way out, girl, an officer with admirable lung capacity bellowed. Step, she thought to herself. Do the thing like they did. Her self-berating voice sounded a lot like Rangi in her head. It should be easier with more speed, right? She hurled herself toward the wall, praying that she could avatar herself into picking up a technique she'd only seen once. Her on-the-run attempt to bend the necessary struts without destroying the whole town resulted in only pitiful bumps of earth appearing before her. They collapsed under her weight, tripping her up. She fell forward uncontrollably, face first. She wasn't able to cross her arms in front of her before she made impact. Kiyoshi shut her eyes as she slammed into the wall. There was a terrible crash, an explosion of snapping bricks and tearing mortar. When she opened them again, she was on the other side, still running. She'd plowed straight through without feeling a thing. She must have bent reflexively, flinched and wrapped herself in her own power, like a cloak. A quick glance back showed a Kiyoshi-sized hole in the wall and surprised guards trying to decide whether to leap through or go over the top. In her distraction, she collided with the corner of a house. Fear of broken bones caused her to force her way through the clay structure the instant she felt the pain of impact on her shoulder. The building stayed standing, a neat chunk of it ripped off like a sampled loaf of bread. Ahead of her, the spaces between closed-up merchant shops were so narrow that a person smaller than her would have had to stop and wedge through sideways. Rangi sent up another beacon. The only way to get there was as the bird flew. Kiyoshi sent an apology into the cosmos for the damage she was about to cause, and barreled straight into the cluster of buildings. If she couldn't be a creature of grace, then she'd be a battering ram. She smashed through the first wall like it was rice paper. Inside, she crossed the floor in a few steps and burst into the neighboring section, boring a passageway through the cluster of storerooms. Each section she stampeded through offered a momentary glimpse of different merchandise. Dry goods, wet goods, weapons. Ivory that was certainly illegal. Fancy hats. 
She was glad that she was only ruining inventory and not harming living occupants with flying debris. Her face felt tight, and she wondered if she'd injured herself, ripped her skin open. But no, she determined. She was grinning with a locked, maddened expression, mindlessly exulting in her own power and destruction. Once she realized it, she quickly worked her jaw back into a grim frown and splashed through the next wall. An unfamiliar sensation caused her to flail after hitting the last barrier. It was freedom. She was in a broad street, going the right way for once. Up above her on the rooftops, the whole crew sprang deftly from surface to surface, bolstering themselves with their element when necessary. I see you made your own shortcut, Karima shouted. The water lifting her up sparkled prettily in the moonlight, making her look like a lunar fairy. Kiyoshi checked behind her to see if anyone had followed the trail of utter devastation she'd left through the town. Where's Rangi? Still in the lead. That's quite a companion you've got. There was another blaze of light that resembled a rocket climbing into the night. Rangi had joined the Daofei on their level. She ran as nimbly as they did on the roof tiles, and when there was a leap too great to make naturally, she stepped on jets of fire that blasted out of her feet, bounding in propulsive arcs across the sky. The sight made Kiyoshi's breath come to a standstill at the very time she needed it flowing. Rangi was so beautiful, illuminated by moon and fire, that it hurt. She was strength and skill and determination wrapped around an unshakable heart. Kiyoshi had always admired Rangi, but right now, it felt as if she were gazing at her friend through a pane of glass freshly cleaned. Some mighty and loving spirit had reached down from the heavens and outlined the firebender in new strokes of color and vibrance. There was a struggle in Kiyoshi's chest that had nothing to do with how hard she was running. Notes of longing and fear played in one chord. She tamped the feeling down, not wanting to confront what it meant right now. In any case, it was a poor time to be distracted. Soon, they exhausted their supply of houses to leap over. They reached the shanties in the outskirts, causing more confusion for the residents who'd seen Kiyoshi and Rangi head inward for the night, but now flee for their lives in the opposite direction, with three other people in tow. Lek raced for the copse of trees without being told, perhaps understanding that there were only a few places you could hide a ten-ton bison. Kiyoshi reached the copse in time to catch the boy as Peng Peng roared and blasted him backward with wind. Easy, girl, she coughed, her lungs burning from the run and inhaled building dust. They're with us. Walking across the sky must have been a highly efficient technique, because no one else seemed as tired as she. Rangi leaped onto Peng Peng's neck and unwound the reins from the saddle horn. The Daofei climbed onto the bison's back, gripping her fur with strange familiarity. Once they were settled, Rangi took Peng Peng up above the tree line. Lek was ecstatic. A bison, he screamed, drumming on the saddle floor. A real bison. Calm down, Rangi said. 
It's not like you can't see them near any air temple. He's just excited because we used to have one of our own, Wong said. Cute little fella, named Long Yen. Despite their need to move quickly, Rangi paused, leaving Peng Peng swooping around in a gentle, idling circle. Wait, how? she said. Only air nomads can tame bison. The animals won't listen to strangers if they're stolen. We didn't steal Long Yen, Karima said. He was Jess's bison. Rangi squinted in confusion and turned to Kyoshi. But wasn't Jessa your mother? Kyoshi winced. She spotted a reprieve from the awkward conversation, albeit only a temporary one. On the ground below them, waving his hands, was Lao Ge. He'd managed to escape the dozens of men who had him surrounded and made it to the hiding spot in better time than anyone else. The Dao Fei didn't look one bit surprised to see him. Rangi took Peng Peng Lo and Wong leaned over, clasping hands with Lao Ge and swinging him onto the saddle, again with the smooth ease of practice. I thought we might finally be rid of your stinking hide, Lek yelled. Not quite so easy, Lao Ge said. Is anyone else thirsty? I could use. Shut up, Rangi snapped. She fixed Kyoshi with her gaze again. Does that mean what I think it means? About your mother? She looked hurt at another secret being kept from her. But Kiyoshi had honestly, sincerely forgotten to bring it up. It hadn't been relevant until now. Yes, Kiyoshi said sheepishly. My mother was an airbender. I'm half air nomad. She felt terribly guilty. She'd forced Rangi to absorb a lot in the past day. Finding out that Kyoshi wasn't the fully Earth Kingdom girl that Rangi had assumed this whole time was yet another small weight added to the pile. But hearing that a despicable criminal and gang boss was an air nomad would have been enough to shock and confuse anyone. People around the world looked up to airbenders as enlightened paragons who were free of worldly concerns. They belonged to a benign, peaceful, monastic culture that was so spiritually pure that every single member had bending ability. Rangi resembled a child who'd just been told that the sweets tucked underneath her pillow had been left by her parents instead of the great harvest spirit. Karima and Wong detected the awkwardness between them and remained silent. Lek wasn't so observant. What's everyone looking sour for? He said, slapping Rangi and Kyoshi on their backs. We finally have a bison again. Our best days are ahead of us. He thrust his fists into the air and let out a whoop. The Flying Opera Company is back in business. They camped along the bank of a dried up creek, hiding themselves by virtue of being way out in the middle of nowhere. If the officers in Chameleon Bay knew what direction they'd gone in, it still would have taken at least a day by ostrich horse to catch up. They didn't bother hiding the fire Rangi blasted into the ground for them. It burned larger than they needed, sputtering and crackling from unseasoned fuel. They ate the last of the dried food. 
Karima and Wong fell asleep first, without asking about shifts. Lek waded into the waterless creek, picking up a few polished stones that caught his fancy before he settled in for the night. Rangi was holding a grudge over how badly the day's events had gone. Almost getting arrested by the local police, the Daofei insinuating themselves into their camp, the revelations about Kyoshi's heritage. So the two of them engaged in a silent, petty contest of wills to see who would fall asleep next. Kiyoshi had the advantage, knowing that there was probably a nightmare waiting for her. She made sure Rangi was truly out cold before laying the good blanket they'd kept hidden from the others over the firebender's shoulders. Kiyoshi walked along the river, wobbling over paved stone-sized rocks that had once been underwater, until she found Lao Gu sitting under a gnarled tree. Half its roots had been washed clean in some long-ago flash flood, while the rest clung tightly to the bank. The tree's efforts were in vain. It was dying. Lao Gu's eyes were closed in meditation. You're very loud, he said. She frowned. She'd practiced stepping lightly for years as a servant, to move like a whisper so as not to distract guests. I mean your spirit is loud, the old man said. It rings in the air. Sometimes it screams. Like right now, your body may be all the way over there, but your spirit is grabbing me by the shoulders and howling in my face. If you went to the spirit world in your current condition, you'd cause a typhoon the size of Ba Sing Se. I know who you are, Kiyoshi said. It took me a while to figure it out, but after seeing you fight so many men at once, it was clear. He opened one eye a crack. Kiyoshi had a theory that people who liked meditating practiced that gesture to look good-humored and wise. You're Tieguai, the immortal, Kiyoshi said. Oh? Lao Gu said, fully interested now. I suppose there was a description of me in Jessa's journal. Long white hair, great dancer, devastatingly handsome. It didn't have that much detail. It said you were an underworld legend, rumored to be 200 years old. But that's obviously a tall tale. Of course. I'm a man, not a spirit, after all. I know it's you because of a different description, Kiyoshi said. Tiegwai fights with a crutch. I was looking for someone with a wooden crutch or a bad leg. Then... I saw you leaning on your earth bending while you fought the lawmen in the square. Lao Gu sighed, as if he pitied her for putting two and two together. He put his hands on his knees and raised himself to his feet. Then he tiptoed down the web of roots until he was in Kyoshi's face. Why would one such as yourself seek out immortal Tiegwai? He said no longer an old man, but a human-headed monster asking a riddle in exchange for safe passage. After
After all, your mother never did. She only called me Lao Ge. The root he perched on shouldn't have been able to support a bird, let alone a human being. Kiyoshi swallowed hard. She had a sense of tumbling downhill, her inner ears roiling like choppy seas. An inability to go back to the harbor. Because she was afraid of you, Kiyoshi said. She didn't know when you first joined the group, but her suspicions grew over time that you were Tiegwai the assassin. Tiegwai, who killed the 40th Earth King. She figured out that you were using her smuggling gang as cover to travel from place to place as you eliminated targets for your own purposes. She was too scared to confront you. The entries in her mother's hand had been completely fearless while describing dangerous smuggling jobs, burglaries, and skirmishes with local militias. They were the musings of someone who'd thrilled to the life of a Dalfei. But the journal also had patches that were rife with criminal superstition, none more so than the scattered stories about a shadow who moved across the Earth Kingdom, snuffing out lives both exalted and lowly, according to some unknowable design. Jessa the smuggler had pieced together the pattern. Whenever the silly old man in her gang slipped away by himself, a death would happen nearby. Sometimes it would be a prominent noble who should have been safe behind thick walls and numerous guards. Lao Ge, the name had stuck hard, lowered his head and mouthed a quick prayer for the dead. That woman always was very observant. I'm surprised I didn't catch her catching me. So what is it that her daughter wants? To bring me to justice? No, Kiyoshi said. I want you to teach me how to kill someone. If Lao Ge was surprised by her answer, he didn't show it. Hit them in the head really hard with a rock. No, Kiyoshi repeated. Bending and killing are not the same thing. The image raced through her mind, the way Genju had so casually done the unspeakable, first to Yun and then to Kelsong, as easy as breathing. It needed to be that easy for her. She could afford no mental block, no hesitation when it came to taking his life. She had to be ready in all regards when she next saw Jenju. A breeze in the night air puckered her skin. You should go to sleep, girl, Lao Ge said. Because you've already learned lesson one. So does that mean we'll continue later? She decided to test the waters. Sifu. If and when I believe the time is right. She bowed and left him to his meditations, backing away out of distrust as much as respect. Her footing was unsteady and threatened to roll her ankles. Right before she was about to turn, Lao Ge spoke up again. I'd appreciate it if you didn't tell the others about my independent ventures, he said.
I don't wish to complicate matters with our little merry band. The relationship between Lao Ge and the other Daofei was not her problem. But if that was the only leverage she had in order to get him to teach her, she'd use it. I wouldn't dream of it, Sifu. Lao Ge smiled benignly. It reminded her of Jenju's, only more genuine. It reached his eyes. He had no need to hide what he was from her. And in return, I'll keep your secret, he said. Kyoshi. The Agreement Kyoshi slept poorly, fretting during the night over what the old man had said. Her secret. First Tagaka, and now Lao Gu. If every old person could look into her eyes and deduce she had unusual power or was the avatar, then she'd be in trouble. The only benders she'd be able to learn from would be infants like Lek. A toe in her ribs woke her. She clawed at the hard surface under her, dirt filling her fingers instead of her sheets. She found herself blearily missing her bed. Get up, Rangi said. The sun hadn't risen yet, and the fire still had a few red embers glowing in it. Lauga was nowhere to be seen, and the others were engrossed in a three-way snoring contest. Gray pre-dawn light made the dusty riverbank appear like it had been treated with lye, leached of color and vitality. Kiyoshi staggered to her feet. Having moved in the night, the good blanket fell off her onto the ground. What? Rangi shoved her along the bank in the opposite direction she'd taken last night. You wanted training? Well, you're getting training. Starting today. Now. They walked, Kiyoshi feeling like a prisoner as Rangi prodded her sharply every so often for not moving fast enough. They put some distance between themselves and the camp, but much less than Kiyoshi thought they would by the time Rangi ordered her to stop. A series of grassy mounds shielded them from view of the others, but the small hills weren't very high. Let's see your horse dance, Rangi said. You don't get a pass on the basics that earthbending has in common with firebending. We're firebending? Here? Anyone who came searching for them would certainly check this place. They'd left Pung Pung alone with criminals who coveted her. We're reviewing basics, not making flame, Rangi said. I doubt you need a lot of nuanced, high-level instruction at this point. Can you even hold a deep bending stance for ten minutes? Ten minutes? Kiyoshi had heard five was an admirable goal, one that she'd never reach. There was a hint of a smirk on Rangi's lips. Horse stance, now. I don't say things to my students twice. Three minutes in, and Kiyoshi knew what this was. Punishment. The burning in her thighs and back, the ache in her knees, was retribution for not telling Rangi everything. Look, I'm sorry, she said. Rangi rested her elbow in her other hand and examined her nails. 
You're allowed to talk once your hips get to parallel. Kyoshi swore and readjusted her bones. This had to be an exercise meant for short people. I should have told you my mother was an airbender. I didn't think it was relevant. Rungi seemed satisfied with the apology, or the amount of pain she was inflicting on Kyoshi. It is relevant, she said. Air nomads aren't outlaws. This is like finding out you had a second head hidden under your robes the whole while. Maybe satisfying Rangi's curiosity would get her out of horse stance early. My mother was a nun born in the Eastern Air Temple, Kyoshi said. I don't know much about her early life, other than she became a master at a young age and was highly regarded. Talking provided a useful distraction from the acid eating her muscles. Then, on a journey through the Earth Kingdom, she met my father in a small town somewhere. He was the Daofei, an earthbender and small-time thief. Uh, I can already see where this is going, Rangi said. Yes, he dragged her into a scheme, and she fell in love with both him and the life of an outlaw. She must have been born into the wrong existence as an air nomad because she tattooed over her arrows with serpents and dove into the underworld with her whole being, seeking out more adventure. Rangi shook her head, still not able to get over an airbender going rogue. That's just so bizarre. You heard the others talk about her, she became a relatively big figure among Daofei, more so than my father. But her airbending suffered from a spiritual taint. Or so her journal says, letting herself be absorbed by worldly concerns and greedy ones at that caused her power to dwindle. So she compensated. With a set of fans, Rangi said, snapping her fingers at a mystery solved. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out why you had fans as an earthbender. I didn't ask because I thought it might have been a touchy subject. It is. The searing pain in her legs had been replaced by a duller, more manageable agony. Why do you think I never told Kelsong? Oh, by the way, I'm the product of one of the worst disgraces to your culture in recent memory. By the time I was old enough to consider bringing it up, there was no point. I had my job. I'd met you. Five minutes, Rangi said. Not bad. Kiyoshi pushed the hurt to the back of her mind. I think I can keep going. Rangi took a lap around her, checking her posture from all angles. It's galling. A master airbender abandoning her spirituality for a low life. No offense. None taken. It doesn't sit well with me either. Rangi poked her in the small of the back. Promise me you'll never throw your life away over a boy, she said, her voice coated thickly with disdain. Kiyoshi laughed. I won't. Besides, who could possibly be worth- the full weight of what she was saying slammed down on her mid-sentence like a heavy gate. 
her insides boiled with disgust at her own weakness. She'd let herself laugh. She'd spoken Kelsong's name out loud without cursing Genju's in the same breath. And worst of all, she'd forgotten Yoon. It didn't matter how long the lapse was. To release her grip on him, even for a second, was unforgivable. Rangi knew it, too. Her face crumpled, and she turned away. Kyoshi remembered what Lao Ge had said about her spirit, making too much noise. Seeing Rangi stilled with grief in front of her drove the lesson home. The two of them held storms inside. Kiyoshi had to be stronger in body and mind. Moments of happiness were like useful proofing, liquid testing the cracks in a jar. The less they occurred, the greater the chance she was on the right track for vengeance. She was still in a low stance. She remembered the ineffectual fire fist she'd thrown in Genju's face. Perhaps if she'd embraced her firebending ability earlier, she could have ended him right then and there. Let me try producing flame, Kyoshi said. Rangi looked up and frowned. Kyoshi's rededication to her cause felt hot and bitter inside her, like steamed in a plugged tea kettle. She was sure that if she let it out, she could firebend. Fire fists, she said. I think I can do them with real flame now. I feel like it'll work. No, Rangi said. No? Kyoshi was taken aback by her certainty. Firebending felt so real, so close. What do you mean, no? I mean, no. You're as tense as a rolled up armadillo lion right now. You're going to produce the wrong kind of flame and develop bad habits. Watch. Rongi stepped to the side. Without warning, she dropped into her stance and punched the air, snapping her sleeves with the force of her motion. Kiyoshi could see her knuckles smolder like the tip of an incense stick. You need to work on relaxation and mental coordination first, Rongi said. Early lessons in firebending are all about suppressing flame and keeping it controlled. For a beginner, making visible fire means failure. Kyoshi scoffed to herself. Not producing flame had been the cause of her problems from the start. Then let me try what you did. She planted her feet in mimicry of Rangi and chambered her fists. Kyoshi, don't. She imagined Genju's face, inhaled, and struck. Her one experience at flame spitting had jiggled something loose, made it easy for her breath to spiral outward from her lungs and combust. Too easy. Energy raced down her arm and crashed into her fingers. It caused her nerves to light up with signals, as if she'd gripped a red-hot coal straight from the stove. Instead of the crisp glow that Rangi produced, the heat that came out of Kyoshi's fist was erratic, toggling, the popping of water added to hot oil. It went on for far too long and caused far too much pain. Kiyoshi fell on her back and tried to get herself pointed away from any target. 
she managed to aim her hand at the sky in time. A tiny, contorted spout of black smoke belched upward from her fingers. Kyoshi sat up. Rangi watched the pathetic yarn ball of vapor climb into the air. Then she gave Kyoshi a stare that was hard enough to flatten iron. They were saved from a difficult conversation by Lek. He crested the hill next to them and traced the path of the smoke with his finger. What kind of broke down firebending was that? He said with a snicker. He directed the question at Rangi, not having seen the source. Rangi crossed her arms. I had a momentary collapse of discipline, she said, still glaring at Kiyoshi. It won't happen again. Not if I ever want to firebend properly. Lek shrugged. Lighten up, I was just asking. If the two of you are done collapsing, breakfast is ready. Breakfast was some manner of rodent, hunted, gutted, skinned, and burnt to the point of unrecognizability. Kyoshi and Rangi ate with big, angry bites as they sat with the Dalfe around the rebuilt fire, each trying to show the other how upset they were through aggressive gnawing. Lek forgot his portion as he watched them, amazed. I didn't think an army princess and a servant girl from a fancy mansion would take to elephant rat. Survival training at the academy, Rangi said, breaking a bone with her fingers to get at the marrow. We learned to accept whatever food we could find in the wild. I used to eat garbage, Kiyoshi said. That drew stares from the group. I thought Jessa and Hark left you in a farming village, Karima said. That doesn't mean the farmers shared food with me. Kiyoshi worked her tongue around a stringy fiber of meat caught in her teeth. They might not have known I was the child of outlaws, but I was still an outcast there. They treated me like I was unclean. And then I had to do things like this to survive, so you know. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Reasons like that are why I can't stand law-abiding salt-of-the-earth folk, Wong said. It's the holier-than-thou attitude, the hypocrisy. He wiped his hands on a leaf. If anything, they deserve to be knocked out and robbed on a regular basis. He noticed Kyoshi staring at him. What, he said. I practice what I preach. You must have hated their guts, Karima said. The villagers? Not really. Kyoshi found she meant it. Not as much as the people who left me with them. Lek threw the remnants of his meal into the fire and walked off, fuming silently. He disappeared behind the other side of Pong Pong, the only member of the party who seemed to make him happy. All right, what's his problem? Kyoshi snapped. Every time I state a fact or an opinion about my parents, he has a fit. That's because he idolized them, Karima said. We picked him up in a town outside the Misty Palms Oasis. He'd just lost his brother, his last remaining family. Hark and Jessa took him in for a few days, and he proved useful on a job. So they taught him more and more of the trade, until he grew into a stricter follower of the outlaw code than the rest of us. He worshipped the ground they walked on. 
Perhaps Karima had meant to soothe the beast inside Kyoshi, but instead, she'd smeared its nose with fresh blood. Oh, I'm sorry, Kyoshi said, a lifetime's worth of unused irony pouring forth. I'll remember to be nicer to the boy my mother and father decided to raise instead of me. Karima made a gesture with her thumbs to indicate how little she cared about the issue. What about you? She said to Rangi. What's a sparky young noble like you doing with an earth peasant? The mere reminder of her duty caused Rangi to sit up straighter. I'm honor-bound to follow and protect Kyoshi. Nope, Kirima said, regretting she'd asked. Gonna cut you off right there. The last time I listened to a firebender talk about honor, my ears nearly rotted off my skull. Had to kick him out of my bed with both feet. She and Wong got up. The two older Daofei didn't feel the need to reciprocate with their life stories. Wong pointed two fingers at the campfire and sunk it a few feet into the ground before covering it up. His size belied the dexterity of his earthbending. In fact, she'd confirmed last night that every member of her parents' gang had finesse to spare. The exact quality she was lacking. We need to talk, Kiyoshi said, getting up as well. Last night we were interrupted before I agreed to anything. Oh, come on, really? Karima said. After what we've been through, you want to take your bison and ditch us in the middle of nowhere? We shared a meal, Wong said, looking genuinely hurt. We beat up lawmen together. My demands haven't changed. Kiyoshi said. I want bending training, and the only benders around are you lot. You'll teach me, personally. What are you lumping me in for, Earth Girl? Karima said. You want to learn water bending forms to relax and improve your circulation? Kiyoshi had prepared an answer overnight for this purpose. Wisdom can be gleaned from every nation, she said, using a quote of Kelsong's. If learning about the other elements can make me stronger, then I'll do it. That desperate for revenge, huh? Karima said. Who is this powerful man who's wronged you? You never told us his name. That's because you don't need to know. Kiyoshi didn't want to talk about Jinju. He was too renowned throughout the Earth Kingdom. The same went for her identity as the Avatar. Information about their link could spread, giving him a trail to hunt her down before she was ready to fight him. Every edge would count in this battle. Kiyoshi recalled the way her parents' gang had flown over the rooftops last night, unimpeded. They'd practically reached the same heights Jinju had with his stone bridges. I want to learn how to run across the sky, she said. Like you did in town. Dust stepping, Wong said. His usually impassive face took on an edge of seriousness. It's our group's signature technique, Karima said. Though for me, it's mist stepping. And it's not something you get for free. The atmosphere had changed. 
Previously, the Dalfei had treated Kyoshi's demands as amusing, the barking of a puppy trying to look fierce. This was the first time they'd gotten truly cautious and guarded, as if they might be swindled in the trade. Rangi noticed their reservations. You're acting pretty serious about a technique I cribbed after seeing it once, she said. Karima fixed her with a stare. Other groups probably would have killed you for that, she said without a hint of jest. You don't last long in our world by letting everyone see your advantages. Secrets are how we survive. She turned back to Kyoshi. We teach you. That means you're in. For real. And for life. You'd have to swear our oaths and follow our codes. In the eyes of those who abide by the law, you'd be a Daofei. I'd be like Tagaka, Kiyoshi thought. I'd be like my parents. She stilled the revulsion inside her and nodded. I understand. Kiyoshi, think about what you're doing. Rangi yelled. Top knot's right for once, Wong said. You don't take these vows lightly. It means accepting us as your brothers and sisters. He raised his brows, showing the whites of his eyes. Since we've met, you've been looking down your nose at us. Can your honor take the hit associating with such unclean folk? The big man was more incisive than he looked. Kyoshi knew what it was like, being on the receiving end of disdain. Her answer was yes. As far as she was concerned, her personal honor and reputation had no value. Trading them for more power was an easy choice. She would do it. For Kelsung and Yoon. She could practically feel Rangi's disappointment vibrating through the ground. What are these oaths? Kiyoshi asked. According to Karima, the swearing-in ceremony was supposed to take place in a grand hall, with the initiate standing under an arch of swords and spears. They'd have to improvise. Kiyoshi took a spot by the riverbank, while Wong stood behind her and held a pocket knife over her head. Karima had Kiyoshi make the same odd salute the gang had used the night before in the tea house. The flattened left hand represented the square folk, the law-abiding community, while the right fist hammering it down represented followers of the outlaw code. Just in case Kiyoshi forgot she was joining the forces of darkness. Rangi stalked some ways off to the side, making sure to stay within their field of vision so everyone could see how angry and disapproving she was the whole time. Karima ignored her while conducting the ceremony. According to the waterbender, there were normally 54 oaths that had to be taken, recited from memory by the new member of the gang. She had decided to let Kiyoshi off easy with just the most important three. Oh, spirits, Karima exclaimed. A lost one comes to us, seeking the embrace of family. But how will we know her heart is true? How will we know that she follows the code? I shall swear these oaths, Kiyoshi said in response. 
I swear to defend my brothers and sisters and obey the commands of my elders. Their kin will be my kin, their blood my blood. Should I fail to uphold this vow, may I be hacked to death by many knives. The words were easy to say. They caused no tugs of conflict on her spirit. Yun and Kelsung had been her lifeblood. She should have defended them with every scrap of her being. They might have lived had she embraced her power more fully. Next, Kiyoshi said, I swear to follow no ruler and be beholden to no law. Should I become the lackey of any crown or country, may I be ripped apart by thunderbolts. As a good citizen of the Earth Kingdom, this line made her a little more nervous. Yun had always said the Avatar had to act independently of the Four Nations. But to disregard law and order entirely felt like an extreme for the sake of extremes. Did her parents walk down the street trying to flaunt every statute and custom they could think of? Stop drifting, Karima hissed. Kiyoshi coughed and straightened up. Last, I swear never to make an honest living from those who abide the law. I will take no legitimate wage and work for no legitimate man. Should I ever accept coin for my labors, may I be sliced to bits by a variety of knives. She didn't see the difference between the first and third punishments. And the last oath was perhaps the one most inimical to her being. Back in Yokoya, a steady job had been the only barrier between her and death. I'm not that person anymore, Kiyoshi reminded herself. That girl is gone and will never come back. With her third vow, she was done. I see no stranger before me but a sister, Karima said. The spirits have borne witness. Let our family prosper in the days to come. She saluted Kyoshi and stepped back. A heavy weight slammed down on Kyoshi's collarbones, and she momentarily panicked, fearing an attack from behind. The sensation was too similar to the rock that Genju had locked around her wrists. But it was just Wong, giving her a congratulatory pat on the shoulders. Welcome to the other side, he said, unsmiling. He brushed past her like they'd finished rearranging furniture and joined Karima in trudging back to the campsite. Kiyoshi blinked. That's it? What happens now? What happens as we leave this place on your bison? Karima said without looking back at her. As soon as we can. They left her alone with Rangi. Instead of scolding Kiyoshi, the firebender simply gave her a shrug that said, you get what you pay for. Karima and Wong were already cleaning up the remnants of camp once they caught up. The big man took special care to cover their footprints, sweeping dust over the signs of their presence with little pivots of earth bending. The deal was for lessons, Kiyoshi said. And you'll get them once we pick up a score, Karima said. She checked the level of her water pouch and made a face. 
Even little baby vengeance seekers need food and money to survive. In case you haven't noticed, we're out of both. I'm not eating elephant rat for two days in a row. Kiyoshi pulled her lips over her teeth in frustration. They'd touted the seriousness of the oaths so much that she'd thought they'd start treating her like an equal after she took them. Instead, they were treating her like Lek. She had to establish a better position in the hierarchy, or else this would go on forever. As Wong reached down to pick up a blanket, she stepped on it, pinning it to the ground. He stood up and gave her a stare that had probably heralded countless brawls in the past. Kiyoshi crossed her arms and met his gaze. He wasn't more dangerous than Tagaka or Jenju. After trying to deal death through the power of his mind alone, Wong broke the silence. Keep being a brat, and I'll never teach you how to use your fans, he said. Kiyoshi was going to retort out of instinct, but the implication made her pause and step back. She pulled out one of her fans. You know how to use these? They'd been a puzzle so far. Rangi had taken a look at the weapons earlier, tested their balance, and concluded she couldn't teach Kiyoshi much about them, other than using them as short, heavy clubs in their folded state. They're not part of the Fire Academy curriculum, she'd said with a shrug. Maybe you can sneak them into places you couldn't take a sword. Wong plucked the fan out of Kiyoshi's hand and snapped it open. He tossed it into the air, and it spun perfectly around its pivot pin, the leaf tracing circles as it flew. He twirled around himself and caught the fan behind his back before lifting it coquettishly to his face. The peony sheds its beauty before the moon, he sang in a deep, beautiful, vibrant voice, using the surface of the fan to reflect and amplify the sound. Shamed by the light of a spirit so pure, I leap to catch its petals and mourn for what I have left unsaid. He thrust the fan all around him in a series of flitting gestures, the leaf opening and closing rapidly like the beating of insect wings. It was an expertly performed dance. But Kiyoshi knew it could also have been a sequence of attacks, defensive weaving, evasion, and retaliation against multiple opponents. With a flourish, Wong ended the performance in a traditional heroic pose. A deep stance with his arms spread wide, his head intentionally wobbling side to side with the leftover energy from his motions. It was a showcase of classic poetry, older than old school. Auntie Mui would have fainted with delight. Kiyoshi applauded, the only appropriate response to a display of skill that great. Where did that come from? she asked. Hark, we have a lineage through your father's side that traces back to one of the royal theater schools in Ba Sing Se, Karima said. And we stay sharp enough at performing to have plausible cover in the cities we visit. We're the flying opera company, after all. She raised a leg behind her, over her head, and kept it going until she completed a forward-facing, no-handed cartwheel, 
a move that elite dancers saved for the climax of their performances. Karima looked like she could have done her market shopping, traveling that way. Kiyoshi was astonished. That would explain how they were so light on their feet. Royal theater performers were known to be some of the most physically capable people in the Earth Kingdom, able to mimic dozens of martial styles on the stage and act out dangerous stunts without getting hurt. It made her feel better about the agreement they'd struck. She could get some extra value out of the bargain. Wong folded the fan and handed it back to her. I'll teach you to use this, he said, for a fifth of your shares on any future jobs we do. Deal, Kiyoshi said quickly. She didn't know what shares were, but she would have paid nearly any price to better understand her weapons. Rangi and Karima both smacked their hands against their foreheads, but for different reasons. You could have gotten at least half, Karima said to Wong. Lek popped his head around the side of Pung Pung. Do you want to get going, or do you want to sit here rubbing each other's backs all day? He said. Hey, Lek, guess who the newest member of the gang is? Karima said. Official and everything. Lek's eyebrows squeezed together in frustration. You cannot be serious, he yelled. He waved his arm at Kiyoshi like she was a fake vase they'd brought home. She doesn't care about the code. She's a biter chaff. She's squarer than the hole in an Earth Kingdom coin. And she has a bison, Kiyoshi snapped. So unless you like walking, I suggest you deal with me being part of your stupid outlaw family. If Karima or Wong took offense to her regression and attitude toward Daofei, they didn't show it. I am never calling you kin, Lex spat. He went back to making final adjustments on Pung Pung's reins. He'd saddled the giant bison by himself, in impressive time, too. Neither Kyoshi nor Rongi could find any fault with the work he'd done as they mounted Pung Pung. Lek took offense at their examination. I know what I'm doing, he said. I probably have more practice than you two. If we're being perfectly honest, our whole reputation was built on Jess's bison, Karima said. We might talk a good game, but Longyan did all the work. Smuggling's a cinch when you can just fly over checkpoints. She and Wong finished loading and climbed onto Pung Pung's back. Rongi marked her territory in the driver's seat, daring Lek to challenge her for it. He compensated for his downgrade in the pecking order by pulling a crude map out of his pocket. Real leaders navigated and scheduled. We're going to a meeting post in the mountains outside Ba Sing Se, he said, denting the paper with his finger. We'll get the latest news from other groups and find a few easy jobs to get our feet back into the water. Rongi lifted off. The late morning sun had yet to turn oppressive, and with the prep work having been done by extra hands, Pung Pung's unhurried climb into the cool air almost felt relaxing. How did the two of you get a bison? Lex's sudden question was tinged with suspicion and jealousy. Neither of you were raised air nomad, he said. And this girl would never let you fly her 
unless she'd already known you for a long time. Did you steal her from an airbender friend? In her head, Kyoshi silently thanked Lek for reminding her of her duty. This was where she needed to stay. Down in the muck, painted in hatred for herself and her enemy, not flying in the wind with Kelsong. Yes, Kyoshi said. I did. Rangi gave her a worried glance, not understanding why she'd lie. Lek shook his head in disgust. Separating a monk from their bison, he said. That's cold. Though I should have expected such low behavior from someone who doesn't respect their mother and father. Kiyoshi said nothing and stared into the distance, where the horizon broke into jagged formations against the sky. The empty feeling was good. It absolved her of choice, allowed her to think of herself as merely a vessel, an agent of balance. But her tranquility was broken when she noticed something missing. Wait, she said, turning around in the saddle. Where's Lao Gu?